With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, it's Michael Adams. Nothing but the truth. One man's journey to find it. It is August the 8th, 2015. We'll talk more about Rome's mercenaries. It's part three. I'm talking more about NATO, UN. Uh, PMCs, uh, private military contractors or mercenary contractors, what are going to say? Military contractors. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Putting all the pieces together somehow. It's hard to find a lot of stuff on NATO. Western Europe is very good at covering up their tracks. They're much better even than the United States. They like to call us Big Brother, but the truth is they're running the show. And we'll start out with uh, talking about that. We'll first listen to, of all things, InfoWars. I'll listen to that. Alex Jones is the other guy who once in a while says it's pretty good. Don't recommend listening too much of InfoWars. They clearly are part of the Orwellian scheme of things. But this one is uh, UN NATO runs the U.S. military. And it is true. We do nothing without their approval. Nothing. As much as people would like to say and try to give us uh, the United States of America or America, uh, the glorious title of being an, imp- an empire, in truth, we're just part of the Roman Empire. And that's how they work. We do their dirty work. Our seems like our existence in this country, what maintains it is through the wars we fight, whether it's psychological or physical, with weapons and bombs, through television, Hollywood, you know, we're just part of it. Of course, they always say that we're the ones doing it, we're the ones in charge, when of course we're not. Because the Knights of Malta, they run the CIA, they run your government, they write, and along with the Jesuits, and they run um, your banks. And just like they throw out the Jews, their token Jews as a front for lazy people like most of us, because we are lazy and preoccupied and could care less. Just give us somebody that, that justify and hate, it, hate on, and that's all we need. So it's your black or white, it's the Jews, it's the Muslims, it's the poor, it's etc., 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 it's the Christians, whatever. We really are stupid. We are. We are. I'm sorry if it offends you, but we are stupid. Uh, we uh, entertain fools, and most of us don't have a clue. I mean, I'm in that boat. That's the reason why I'm sharing my journey with you, since I realize how much time it takes to break away from the amount of deception. So, anyways, we'll start with uh, this one. This one it will be about the uh, UN NATO rules in the U.S. military.
begin just by recapping the story we covered yesterday because it is so important. Resolution calls for impeachment if Obama does not seek war authorization from Congress. Uh, This is dealing with ongoing statements that they do not need to seek the U.S. Congress's approval for war, despite the Constitution explicitly stating in Article 1, Section 8, that this is exactly what must be done. Instead, they're citing international bodies. We covered yesterday the coup d'etat where the Pentagon and Obama are declaring Congress only ceremonial. Uh, and you've got the statements from Leon Panetta. Let's briefly replay just part of that statement right now. Worried about international legal basis, but nobody worried about the fundamental constitutional uh, legal basis that this Congress has over war. We were not asked a stunning and direct violation of the War Powers Act, whether or not you believe it's constitution. It certainly didn't comply with it. We spent our time worrying about the UN, the Arab League, NATO, and too little time, in my opinion, worried about the elected representatives of the United States. Do you think that you can act without Congress uh, to and initiate a no-fly zone in Syria without congressional approval. You know, again, uh, our, our goal would be to, uh, to seek international permission, and uh, we, would, we would come to the Congress uh, and inform you uh, and determine uh, how best to approach this, uh, whether or not we would uh, want to get uh, permission from the Congress. Uh, I think those are issues we would have to discuss as we decide what to do here. Well... I'm almost breathless about that. And everyone should be breathless because this is wildly unconstitutional. And here we have everything that happened in Libya, everything unconstitutional about the takeout in Libya, pursuing Gaddafi, happening again in Syria. And they're still citing international authority over the Congress, saying the Congress does not even matter. Definitely we should get behind Representative Walter Jones's uh, calls for impeachment of Obama. We should try to impeach Panetta and the others involved. This should have happened back in Libya. You saw people like Congressman Kucinich speaking out against that. But did he call for impeachment the way he did for Cheney? Uh, we'll see how that issue develops. But just disgusting as they push us more into war. And it's not a coincidence. We've known for decades, more than 50 years, they were building this alternative world government system to circumvent the United States Constitution. They always said it. And now what do you see? You see ads on TV for things like the Global Force for Good, a Navy ad saying that they work for international interests. Anyway, you've got the Coney 2012 video becoming the most rapidly spread viral video in Internet history, faster than Susan Boyle, we're told, all to open up Africa for the AFRICOM invasion to legitimize international Western-based military action all over the continent of Africa. And so you've got this tear-jerking video, attempts to uh, really get everybody behind this effort, make it seem like a global kind of commons issue. Everyone should get behind it. It's a lot like that free Tibet movement where people don't even know where these countries are or the issues involved, and yet they're moved by emotion into action, tear-jerking. They want to follow these celebrities like Bono, a, a bona fide globalist for the Bill Gates Foundation, people like Angelina Jolie, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, figureheads like Bill Gates who just want to push vaccines in Africa and GMOs in Africa and other parts of the world. Uh, they want to use this issue to legitimize a greater Western invasion into Africa. We've had the experts, including Webster Tarpley, on to talk about how it's really a resource covert shadow war between the Western allies and China for control of Africa. It really doesn't have anything to do with sympathizing 
with uh, victims of African slaughter. There are certainly many of those victims, and it is shameful. But did you see uh, anyone really having an outcry about the killings on the Ivory Coast on the behalf of French soldiers? Did you see a large outcry about over a million dead Iraqis, civilians dead uh, from that slaughter, or all kinds of other things that have happened over the decades in Africa? It's always going on, but you know when a video goes this viral, uh, that someone big and global is behind it. And, of course, the history is all there. Specifically, as criticism surfaces, Coney 2012 gains momentum faster than Susan Boyle. That's in CNN. And you've also got the New York Times article that's cast away here, uh, also drawing out these issues and how big the video is. There it is. Coney 2012 sets mark as fastest spreading viral video. And yet... We flash back to October 14, 2011, and Obama wanted to send 100 Special Forces troops to five countries in Africa to pursue this Coney head of the Lord's Resistance Army because of all the little Africans they were hurting there so they could bring in the troops and legitimize, again, a newly formed AFRICOM uh, unit pursuing the greater African Union under Western powers there. Uh, just a brief update on that, as we'll continue to watch that become a false, hyped-up phenomena, as nobody cares about all the other African dictators, only a guy named Kony, who has to be pursued into multiple nations, multiple jurisdictions by international bodies for the benefit of corporate globalists. That's my take in a nutshell. Moving on, you have the entire artificial intelligence issue. Now, before I even woke up to things going on with eugenics, uh, I knew about issues like 9-11, and I also knew about the dangers of technology moving us forward because I read Ray Kurzweil's Age of Spiritual Machines, and that book alone highlights so many of the ethical dilemmas we face as future technology brings us closer to a centralized, totally totalitarian government. And you see those themes even in that book written more than 10 years ago. And you see it again in the warnings from Professor Roman Yaplotsky of the University of Louisville in Kentucky, who says we must control dangerous AI before it controls us, uh, saying keeping the artificial intelligence genie trapped in the proverbial bottle could turn an apocalyptic threat into a powerful oracle that solves humanity's problems, a computer scientist at University of Louisville in Kentucky, Roman Laplowski, said. But successful containment requires careful planning, so a clever breed of artificial intelligence cannot simply threaten, bribe, or seduce, or hack its way to freedom. And you've got all the globalists, all the top people, all the top elite billionaires talking about the likelihood that this technology will simply kill not only all of us, little people, but them as well. And how are they going to deal with it? Will they make big deals with the emerging AI? Uh, will they keep the rest of humanity as pets? Or will they just allow us to die? You saw Bill Joy of Sun Microsystems bringing out that issue uh, before the Ray Kurzweil book was published published in that book as well as a warning that this was being discussed among the top tech heads. Uh, you also see that warning from Apple's Steve Wozniak. That article came out only a few months ago as to whether or not we will be kept as pets by the elite in the future. And then that brings out all the HAL 9000 scenarios of whether even that technology will simply overwhelm all of humanity. You've got talk about Skynet from the Terminator movie, which itself is based in an older Pentagon technology and the HAL 9000 system. 
deciding whether to turn their deadly power on humans and how one computer scientist is warning it in an article titled, Should We Build Computer Prisons to Trap Artificial Intelligence? And they cite the thematic things that are actually based on real research and Pentagon programs such as Skynet from the famous Terminator movies, as well as HAL 9000 from, of course, 2001 A Space Odyssey, where Kubrick uh, really previewed the ethics to come with that computer system that would gain its own consciousness and then out of that pride of consciousness tried to take over and compete with his human masters and ultimately uh, make them subservient. You've got coverage continuing in Gizmodo. Future computers could bribe, blackmail, brainwash you into doing their dirty work. Uh, it covers the issue and, again, quotes from Jan Plotsky saying, it can discover new attack pathways, launch sophisticated social engineering attacks, and reuse existing hardware components in unforeseen ways Jamplowski said, such software is not limited to infecting computers and networks. It can also attack human psyches, bribe, blackmail, and brainwash those who come into contact with it. We've got even more coverage in Scrape TV. Future artificial intelligence likely to kill everyone once released from jail. And again, these sound like uh, completely fictional headlines, but they're actually uh, warnings of the ethics to come under this age. And you've got a counterquote from one Dr. Howard Poe, uh, who clearly does not fully agree with Jan Plotsky. He says, in part, it is entirely possible that advanced AI will be able and willing to kill us, its creators. We have essentially killed the gods, and so turnabout would be fair play. They could easily turn on us and eliminate uh, the old worry from history, particularly if we treat them poorly, continued Poe. That is the real risk with confining this new species in a kind of digital prison. Once it gets out, it will be bitter and angry and ready to take out its wrath on its parents, and this likely won't be like earrings or tattoos. It's more likely to be genocide, which is much worse, he adds. So you've got all the warnings, and you've got AI emerging sort of like a Hannibal Lecter character, uh, extremely dangerous yet intelligent and fascinating, and, and just pure deadly if he gets out of confinement. Uh, while we're already at the mercy, I might add, of the globally uh, integrated, the pledged to eroding sovereignty and humanity tech heads, uh, Bill Gates only one among many, and we see more and more totalitarian uh, answer coming from the higher tech systems and just look at what's at the end of the end game uh that is in ray kurzweil's book the age of spiritual machines and the other books he's written you better go read those warnings for yourself because i can't articulate it for you properly uh but the real danger is there or just watch 2001 and think about it uh in other news the supreme court ruling prompts the fbi to turn off 3,000 tracking devices uh, this is in response still to nightclub owner Antoine Jones, uh, who was convicted of drug charges before that conviction was overturned. Justice Anthony Scalia wrote a five-member majority opinion uh, holding that the installation and use of the device constituted search under the Fourth Amendment based on trespass grounds. The ruling overturned Jones's convictions. It's important to be clear about what occurred in this case, Scalia wrote. The government physically occupied private property for the purpose of obtaining information. We have no doubt that such a physical intrusion would have been considered a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. But then what happens when they have non-physical tracking systems that apply globally to everyone and everyone's a suspect? That has to do with the system coming as well. 
But in other news, camo cops respond to terror on Pittsburgh campus. This occurred in a report on Thursday, an al-Qaeda gunman attacked Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic on the University of Pittsburgh campus, only it wasn't really an al-Qaeda uh, person. It was just an employee of the clinic who went postal and killed a fellow worker and shot several others. Definitely a tragedy, but at the same time, why do we see the police responding in a military capacity to all these tragedies? Why do we see more and more emerging of police and military and always having a militaristic type of response where they really never stop the killer? They just let him finish what he's doing and then capture him. Uh, and there's always some kind of psychiatrics involved. But uh, you can see where they're just bringing out more of that police state uh, reaction. The problem the problematic answer to problem, reaction, solution that they want to bring about. Uh, we turn now to our quote of the day before we go briefly to a break, and we'll be back with even more news. And then later, of course, Dr. So interesting uh, about the uh, militarization of the police. If you look at G4S, what's going on in Britain, the mother country of ours, that. uh, it's all police has been being militarized, being replaced by private contractors. Obviously, that's what's happening here as well, folks. You see the militarization of the police force, and it's ramping up its fascist, violent uh, propensity. You have men who are not, uh, well, not very well trained and uh, full of hate and anger. Many of these guys came in, coming out of Iraq uh, and the military itself. Um, as, of course, there's the other side of the story of many of the guys returning from Iraq and then ended up being suicided. Um, many, many of them died, thousands, tens of thousands, maybe up to 100,000 since the war began. I don't know if that's true or not, but I would not be surprised. Um, because we see that these things are being changed rapidly right before our eyes with this new world order, which is nothing more than the Roman Empire. <laughs> Anyways, now we will look at, we'll come back to it, we'll look at uh, more of hard proof that the UN and NATO runs the U.S. military. Um, but I think what we'll go into next is, uh, listen to listen to this. It's called the UN NATO New World Order Part One and Two. Okay, here we go. Let's see if we can get this going. So, uh, unfortunately, we're now in a period of international anarchy, and this should make us pause for thinking. Because international anarchy is dangerous. Have decided that they will not allow any independent nation states to continue to exist. They want to destroy all of them. A lot of people die to get to the point where people realize that an empire was not good, the Holy Roman Empire was not a good thing in Europe, so therefore you have to have an independent nation state. Now, the CIA, the State Department, and Wall Street say no, that's no good. Now, why do they do that? The depression, I think, is the key. If you have the bankruptcy of the U.S. Bank in 2008, as Lehman Brothers and everything like this, you now have the bankruptcy of all the European So you have the whole NATO banking world completely bankrupt. What's the 
what's the response of the imperialist ruling class to that? Well, they say, increase the rate of looting. Increase the rate of pillaging and sacking and lobbing and exploiting. <laughs> Council has authorized a no-fly zone over Libya. Ten of its 15 members voted in favor. There were no votes against, but China and Russia were among five abstentions. The resolution also authorizes all necessary measures. That's code for military action to protect civilians. Innocent civilians were beaten, imprisoned, and in some cases killed. That's why the United States has worked with our allies and partners to shape a strong international response at the United Nations. Our focus has been clear. Protecting innocent civilians agreed that a ceasefire must be implemented immediately. That means all attacks against civilians must stop. The necessary request measures ought to be taken to stop the uh, violence, to put an end to the deterring situation in uh, Libya, to protect uh, the uh, civilians. We can or measures to protect and safeguard the civilian population of Libya. They're specifically targeting the areas where international journalists are to feed panic there. Uh, NATO has done all the heavy work. This is a NATO war. Uh, make no mistake, this is a NATO war. They heavily bombed uh, cities west of here. They bombed all night without even 10 seconds of stopping. They bombed this entire city. NATO uh, landed the, uh, uh, the insurgents onto the coast of Tripoli. Uh, they have no respect for uh, the international press. I was putting up uh, a sign on the hotel, on top of the hotel. I took the initiative to do that and write press, and snipers shot at me. Um, I, I implore, I, I beg, uh, I, I the international community, the real international community, the international community of the people, not the governments within the NATO alliance to stop this bloodshed and to, to get NATO to stop supporting this horrific attack in Tripoli. Make no mistake, this is part of the same war that is being engaged in Afghanistan, in, in Iraq, and in Pakistan, and other parts of the world. This is part of the same and the NATO has bombed mercilessly in this country and massacred innocent civilians. I don't know how it will play out. There was a huge psychological war here that has hurt the war effort. The media has been deliberately involved here. And since I'm on the topic of the media, one of my French colleagues was told by a producer by CNN, because uh, we're waiting to be rescued, was told by a producer by CNN that now you are going to suffer the consequences of your actions. Innocent civilians were beaten. Well, you know, NATO went into Libya under a mandate to supposedly, well, they said to protect civilians, but obviously when I was uh, there for quite a long time during uh, the, the eight, nine months NATO bombardment of Libya, every day civilians 
were being killed by NATO, as your report correctly says. You know, I visited a girls' school that was bombed, the, the university in Tripoli, people's homes. Every single day, civilians were, were dying at the hands of NATO, and there was only one incident uh, in, uh, I believe it was in June, in which uh, I think 15 people in Tripoli were killed uh, by a NATO airstrike that NATO actually admitted responsibility for. The rest of the time, they claimed that uh, civilian targets were legitimate military targets. Are they really helping the civilians? Because I believe that all this is because of economic reasons, or at least there are other reasons why this war happened, petroleum or other things. I've seen many times that these rebels are making criminal acts. For example, they've taken Libyan soldiers and killed them by cutting their heads off, and they take their hearts out and show them to people. So our question is, are we making allies of these people that are committing criminal acts? And can these people really govern a country? No. Yeah, you know, chaos, mayhem, destabilization are, are the friends of exploitation. And so if you can have internal problems in a country, then, you, then it's ripe for exploitation. You know, it's the old divide and conquer. So, for example, in the Middle East... The fact that Sunnis and Shiites and, and Israelis all are at each other's throats works to the advantage of oil companies because they all came together and found a common enemy, which is the exploiting people, and then the oil companies wouldn't have the chance. But as long as they can keep it destabilized. President Obama has spent many days now consulting with Congress and talking with leaders around the world about the situation in Syria. And last night, the president asked all of us on his national security team to consult with the leaders of Congress as well, including the leadership of the Congressional National Security Committees. And he asked us to consult about what we know regarding the horrific chemical weapons attack in the Damascus suburbs last week. The North Atlantic Council has just discussed the situation in Syria, and in particular, the horrific use of chemical weapons around Damascus on the 21st of August. We condemn in the strongest possible terms these outrageous attacks, which caused major loss of life. The British Broadcasting Corporation is accused of staging chemical weapons attacks. The CIA admits planting CNN reporters. August 2013, and NATO leaders can't get the public on side for the imminent bombing of Syria. Suddenly, the BBC says it was filming a small rural hospital, and a game-changing atrocity happens right there, the moment they were filming. We were filming the doctors working at this hospital when victims of an incendiary bomb attack on a school playground started pouring in. But the highly skeptical public state hostile to military intervention. Exactly one month later, the leaders are trying to pin a chemical weapons attack on Syria without success. The BBC airs exactly the same footage, but digitally alters the word napalm for, quote, chemical weapons, hoping no one will notice. Absolute chaos and carnage here. It must be some sort of chemical weapon. Not only did folks notice, but it's unleashed a massive public investigation, which made some extremely disturbing findings. This audio analysis
analysis by media investigator Robin Upson shows both versions are identical and from the same speech. The BBC then digitally altered the words from napalm to chemical weapon, the exact justification NATO was finding difficult to prove. That game-changing allegation was made by two doctors that had travelled with the BBC, who claimed the number of sudden casualties is, quote, overwhelming. What kind of doctor, notes media investigator Robert Stewart, gives interviews when she is surrounded by supposedly seriously burned and dying teenagers? Get anyone who isn't a patient out of here. When a nurse does finally start to help, her order to get anyone who isn't a patient out of here doesn't apply to the cameramen. Even worse, note Stuart, is the bizarre acting which starts when the man in the center gives the sign. What do you need to see? We are just human beings. We want to live. You know? This is our life to live. Dr. Roller, on whose sole claim the BBC sends napalm chemical weapons allegations around the world, is actually the daughter of Syrian rebel Musa Al-Qadi. Brilliant is how a top Western official called tricking the public through routine faking of atrocities and commonly aired on mainstream bulletins. Nightly news shows just a few cases of what happened next after mainstream cameras ended their reports. It shows people putting on you know, fake wounds. It shows there's some guys there. Look, there's their head wounds. Peace, everybody. You know, we're doing the right thing. We're, we're creating fake propaganda. I mean, it's not even real atrocity. So they're there lined up. There was another video that shows some guy kicking his leg and with a fake blood wound. Here's a guy who wakes up from his funeral. Watch this. They're, they're, they're uh, reading. Oh, there. Oh, wait. There. Oh, he's awake. He's not even really dead. And so, I mean, this is just crazy. You know, I mean, we need to say it because you are, uh, you are talking the very bad about children. Everybody, when they point to the BBC, everybody can hear the lie about Syria. Al Jazeera and the Arabia. Maybe Syria is like any country. Some people support. No, no, everybody is support. So Syria is different. There are very little people, little people. Maybe 10,000 like that. But the most of people, 22 million, 23 million, Pro-war media is forced to resort to colossal lies since intelligence chiefs revealed to America's top investigative reporter, Cy Hirsch, quote, Obama's cronies are making it up. All the evidence actually points to the jihadis staging the chemical attack. <laughs> No doubt that uh, we need a strong and unified uh, message from the international community, uh, a message that the regime in Damascus can't uh, misunderstand. Um, it's outrageous what we are witnessing um, in Syria. It's a real tragedy for the country, for the Syrian uh, people. It's a risk uh, for regional um, security and, um, and uh, stability. Um, and the sooner uh, the regime in Damascus realizes um, that 
the only way forward is to accommodate the legitimate aspirations of the Syrian people, the better. wants to leak something in the U.S., they usually go to the Washington Post. And the CIA and the Mossad on the ground working side by side with the Qataris, the Turks, the Saudi Arabians, and of course the swarm of jihadists coming from everywhere, but especially across the border from Iraq. Everybody knew about this for months. So uh, the, the picture that Washington wants to project that they are leading from behind, no, they are leading in the front lines alongside Al-Qaeda-style jihadists, Qatari intelligence, Turkish logistics, they are offering logistics for all these operations, and what they are betting on, that's the most important thing, they are betting on a weakened Syrian government in Damascus, sectarian war all over the place. If you just watch RT reports, this is the, the first impression uh, what was decided in Libya last year. In fact, uh, the maneuvering and the wording of the UN Resolution 1973 uh, authorizing war against Libya, a no-fly zone was actually war against Libya last year. That's the end of international law as we know it. Nation states don't matter anymore. We already knew that in terms of uh, financial capitalism. Now we have learned that in terms of international law protection nation states on a geopolitical level, this is gone, this is over. Now, you, if you are a neo-colonial power, like Britain and France, or an empire like the US, you can trample on nations' sovereignty anywhere, in anyhow, any place. And this is exactly what's happening. And that's why Russia has been opposed to it from the start. Because Moscow sees that as the end of the, na the sovereignty of the nation state. End of the sovereignty of nation states. Interesting. Else, interesting. Uh, at the time of this report being done, it was back, what, 2013, NATO had been bombing Libya for nine months, right? Did you know about that? Very interesting, don't you think? I have a lot of things I wanted to say, but I don't know. Um, what do I want to say? What do I want to say? Oh, yeah, well, one thing. Uh, once again, everyone keeps on saying American empire. It's not an empire. It's bogus. It's all get out. We're a part of the empire. And it's just ridiculous. So. <clears throat> European... The propaganda also plays false flag operations that have been going on forever and a day. You cannot trust anything that you see in uh, digital format, especially when anything in particular comes to film, because it's so easy through CGI and technology, computer-generated imagery, and all the different other aspects that you can fake anything. You can fake UFOs. So you see those lights and people say, oh, I see a UFO, and then you find out it's there put in. Uh, or Bigfoot, all these Bigfoot ones where it's just, oh, it's got to be Bigfoot. No, many times it's CGI once again, or it's a guy in a suit. <clears throat> Makes you wonder. Makes you wonder about that guy, Bear, who worked for an organization, an outfit, you know, Bear and Kumbo and their Bigfoot Outlaws radio Podcasts, whatever thing. 
that you know his job was he worked for a company that was creating these sound weapons. Was it infrasound weapons or whatever they call it? And that's probably not saying it right, but anyways, how they use frequency and hertz as, as military weapon. <clears throat> yeah, and then he ends up being Mr. Bigfoot. Uh, yeah, so you have all these things that's fake argument going on, so you can't trust anything at this point that comes out of the television, especially imageries. Um, Got to use the Bible along with it. Got to accept the fact that the, fourth, the final empire isn't the Roman Empire. It's not the United States. It's the Roman Empire. The United States is not even mentioned in the Bible. Although the whack jobs will say otherwise, but they have no way to prove that except they regurgitate things from uh, such nonsense from pre-Masonic influenced uh, Ellen G. White and etc. And they don't have any integrity to admit that. And they have no integrity of saying, you know what, I really don't know what I'm talking about. I'm going to keep on studying and studying and figuring out what's really going on and not follow the herd, but follow the truth. And of course they accuse you of not having the spirit yourself. And, but of course these people are the ones who are truly spiritually dead. They have no idea. Anyways, we're now going to part two of this NATO, UN NATO New World Order. Good evening. The situation in Ukraine presents serious implications for the security and stability of the Euro-Atlantic area. And this is not just about Ukraine. This crisis has serious implications for the security and stability uh, of the Euro-Atlantic area as a whole. Ukraine relies on Russia for 60% of its gas needs. But as a country enduring political chaos and on the brink of bankruptcy, Kiev has not been paying its gas bill owed to Russian supplier Gazprom. The company's CEO, Alexei Miller, warns that this can't go on forever. Well, earlier, Gazprom warned that there's a risk of a return to early 2006, referring to the gas shortages that Europe endured because Ukraine did not pay its bills and was cut off. The same thing happened in 2009 as well. Now, as a consequence, to avoid this supply disruption in the future, we have the Nord Stream created, a gas pipeline to bypass Ukraine and send gas directly into Europe, as you can see there. And there's also the planned South Stream as well that will run along the bottom and take gas uh, to southern Europe. That is in planning at the moment. Now, Russia is Europe's largest natural gas supplier, and Moscow is keen to keep it that way. But still, more than half of all gas supplied to Europe travels through Ukraine. The most prominent voices on the right rushing to embrace the idea that fracking, natural gas exports, and the Keystone Pipeline are what it takes to stop the Ruskies. And the president wanted to strengthen his hand and help protect our allies in our region. He picked up his phone and used his pen uh, and had the energy department approve these applications for these LNG exports. Well, I think we should move forward on natural gas exports uh, very quickly. I think we should approve an LNG terminal on the East Coast to go to Europe. I think we should approve the Keystone Pipeline. One of the best ways to do it, frankly, is to let the Europeans know that we're going to export LNG to Europe. Think about what, what the situation would be if more U.S. oil were out in that global market.
And Venezuelan leader Hugo Chavez has once again accused the United States of playing God. But this time it's Haiti's disastrous earthquake that he thinks the U.S. was behind. Spanish newspaper ABC quotes Chavez as saying that the U.S. Navy launched a weapon capable of inducing a powerful earthquake off the shore of Haiti. He adds that this time it was only a drill and the final target is destroying and taking over Iran. They first appear to be simply contrails, coming from high-flying jet airplanes. But these trails linger in the sky for many hours, some for even an entire day, forming an artificial cloud. Chemtrails are deliberately sprayed by high-flying U.S. Air Force tankers, dispersing chemicals into the atmosphere. We have an FAA representative, in fact, a high government official, a person we came to call Deep Sky, attesting to the truth and the reality behind chemtrails. He described this program of spraying chemical trails at high altitudes in so-called commanded airspace, where commercial flights are routed around and beneath tanker airplanes belonging to the U.S. Air Force. The theory is that chemtrails are being used in conjunction with heart by spraying metal oxide into the air above enemy sky, then directing ELF waves from HARP to heat those metal oxides. The temperature of the sky is raised to more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit, preventing the accumulation of water vapor that would otherwise form clouds and produce rainfall. The ELF waves HARP produces bounce off the ionosphere and are able to curve around the Earth over the horizon to the ground making any point on the globe well within reach. The bottom line is this. It is the same thing with climate change. And in a sense, climate change can now be considered another weapon of, war, of, of, of mass destruction, perhaps even the world's most fearsome weapon of mass destruction. Well, uh, first of all, let me let me correct what I, uh, what I said about climate change is it's one of the one of the two or three top sort of weapons or instruments of mass destruction, which it is. Um, it's having a profound impact on a global basis, and will continue to. Obviously, we have others that are also of enormous concern. But climate change, uh, you know, global warming, whatever you whatever anybody prefers to call it, is. Uh, is increasingly a national security threat. It is increasingly going to provide major challenges to food security, to water security, to refugee populations, which it's going to create, uh, to the stability and instability of countries, to economies. Uh, this is growing in its uh, urgency for us to respond to it. Last year, I confronted Seizo Takanaka, the former Japanese finance minister, over why he handed over control of the Japanese financial system to a group of American and European oligarchs. He and his envoy told me 
that it was because Japan had been threatened by an earthquake machine. It couldn't heat up an area and cause it to flow into the next door area. In other words, these people are capable of creating the cyclone that hit Myanmar, the tsunami that hit Indonesia, and the earthquake that hit China. Now, after the earthquake hit Niigata, a member of the Inagawa crime family, which is based in around the U.S. Yokosuka Air Base, and members of the Inagawa family have told me that their big boss is George Bush Sr. In other words, they work for Skull and Bones. And they invited me to a so-called UFO gathering where they showed me the video of this blob. It told me it was a UFO, but it was obviously, to me anyway, a plasma. Stop this mass murder. They've already killed 500,000 people. If we find out that the tsunami in Indonesia was caused by them, and there's a good chance because the earthquake seemed to be politically timed. They asked the Indonesian government to open the Straits of Malacca and to join in the fight against terrorism, and they refused. What happened? There was a tsunami, and suddenly they there's only one bottom line on Wall Street, and that bottom line is how much money you make. You've got to be smart. You've got to be quick. If you see something, you've got to act upon it. So much opportunity, and you've got to have the edge. Greed is ugly. Make as much money as you can so that you can get out of there before it turns you to the dark stuff. In the Windy City at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, there is a new kind of gamble underway. This bet involves the weather. Extreme weather events from floods to droughts to record snow can make or break a business. This is where weather features and options come into play. There are investments that allow businesses and individuals to manage potential risk. Recently, the CME Group began offering futures and options trading on rainfall and snowfall for select cities. Jeff Hodgson, president of the Chicago Weather Brokerage, part of the CME Group, explains that weather is a huge driver of the economy. While the trades are meant to hedge risk, is this essentially gambling on the weather? If your business is dependent upon weather, you are actually gambling by not participating in this marketplace because your revenue is driven off of something you cannot control. So by you not participating and by not hedging this, you're actually the gambler. How does it work? Well, so uh, first of all, the interesting thing is that you can, you can hedge out heat in the summer, snowfall in the winter, rain in the spring, frost in the fall. There's a whole family of these things. And whereas they used to just be private contracts, now they're traded on exchanges, they're cleared. Uh, it, it's become a real financial instrument. And people actually trade it. I mean, this is a market? It's a, it's a very big, a surprisingly big market and getting bigger all the time. They're adding contracts for all of all the, the world, all sorts of new kinds of weather phenomena, and hurricanes, of course, a big one. But if you want to take one, let's take a, take a look at uh, the heat, the way to hedge up the heat. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's called a cooling degree day. A CDD is the, uh, is the key index. 
Uh, and that is set on some, some number above which it is assumed, believe it or not, that you're going to have to have air conditioning running on that day. So a CDD is a day in which you're going to need air conditioning. And what they do is they say, we're going to assume a baseline temperature for that, pick a number, 65 degrees. Then during the course of an average of a day, we'll take the average temperature for that day from midnight to midnight at a given weather station. And if that average temperature is above the reference number, say 65 degrees, then this it's a wild. CDD. Yes. I can't believe it. Clean, clean, and always. All right, NATO headquarters. The very day that they're leaving, I know where the king and queen of Norway are. And I mentioned this to Mayor Obendorf, whose husband's involved in this weapons sale stuff, because her husband, Roger Obendorf, and my husband went to this deserted airfield. Roger Obendorf is involved with Andrew Fine, who's Army Intelligence, who tried to take over the Norwegian organization from me when I knew that the Andrew Fine does all this group swinging sex with his wife and his NATO couple. And, you know, and I'm going, something's going on here. Uh, Roger Obendorf and my husband went to this airfield. I wasn't allowed. So I knew because my husband was meeting with other people like, uh, in other words, this is big. Yeah, now, when you mention NATO group swinging sex, are you, are you talking about the, the most, some of the most powerful people in this world, the leadership of this military? Absolutely. Uh, and their wives being pretty, I mean. Yes. Yes, I'm talking I mean, This does not give security to the people of not only this nation, but the people of the world. No. You think that people who have the power to kill others, wage wars, send your sons and daughters yes. into battles, these people are complete, whacked out. Degenerate. Degenerate. Absolutely. Well, interesting there was the plasma blocker box. I couldn't figure out exactly what he's saying, but there's something that they're able to drop from a plane that looks like a UFO as well. Is that just simply one of those drones that they have? That, what What is it exactly? I don't know. Anything, anything that you see, if you think it's an alien, it's from a from human being, so... I'm trying to think of what to listen to next. I think well, we will go with um, either we go with uh, NATO's secret army or um, I'm trying to think what I want to do. And maybe that's what we'll do. Daniele Ganzo. Daniele is a historian and researcher specialist. Talk radio, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome to another Soft Talk Radio show. I'm Neil Bradley. My co-host is Joe Quinn. Hi there. And with us this week to discuss NATO's secret armies in Europe is special guest Dr. Daniele Ganzer. Daniele is a historian and researcher specializing in energy issues, economic history, geostrategy, and international contemporary history since 1945. He is the founder and owner of the Swiss Institute for Peace and Energy Research, Daniele Lectures History and the Future Energy Systems at the University of St. Gallen and Context Studies at the Institute of Sociology at the University of Basel. His book, 
NATO's armies in Europe, NATO's secret armies in Europe, has been translated into 10 languages. And he has a new book out called Europe in the Oil Rush, depicting the struggle for oil in the future. A very warm welcome to you, Daniele. Thanks very much for coming on our show. Thank you very much for the invitation. Well, uh, we've been aware of your book for some time, and we've read it, and it's absolutely excellent. Um, it was published in 2005, but the research that went into it was originally part of your PhD thesis. That's correct, yes, yes. I did my PhD in history in the late 90s, and at that time, most people said terrorism is not very interesting, but I decided to research terrorism and manipulated terrorism, and I finished the PhD in September 2001. Well, that's interesting timing, isn't it? Because yeah, it well, is. Well, that's half now. <laughs> it suddenly came back. Uh, it came front, back. Front and center yeah. in a big way, yeah. you know, right when you finished your PhD. Um, so I suppose you did. Did you find that a little bit? Uh, I mean, were you? What was your impression at the time of the September 11th attacks after having just I, completed all of this work? Yeah, I was. I was surprised that you know the terror issue came back so strongly because uh, I started the PhD in '98, research it in '99, 2000, 2001. And at that time, you know, it was four years of research. I had many times of people who said, well, why don't you work on the United Nations or NATO or, you know, NGO issues? And, and why do you work on terrorism? It's really, you know, that was that was interesting in the 70s in Germany when we had the Hotel Mayfaction or, you know, when the Ireland conflict with IRA was, was hot and boiling. But, yeah, you know, it's a history thing. And I said, no, no, I'm really interested in this. And um, then when the 9-11 attacks happened, I was, of course, you know, from the beginning, always bothered by this question, is this now manipulated state terrorism or is this, you know, real Al-Qaeda is guilty for it? And it, it was Osama bin Laden who, who surprised Bush and Cheney. So, I, I, you know, from the beginning, I, I had this, this mindset because it was my academic training. Yes, yeah, so people, um, as you said, people were suggesting, or your friends, or your peers were suggesting that you uh, go and work for, you know, work for NATO, but instead you decided to invest NATO, essentially, um, as part of your your PhD. And, and I mean, what you turned up, uh, uh, just in, in reading your book, it's, I suppose, apart from the details, the shocking details within the actual uh, chronology of events in Europe, uh, the most shocking thing for me is that as far as I'm aware, very, very few people know about this, know about Gladio, know about NATO stay behind armies and have any awareness that any of this was going on. Like people today, they, you go and ask someone uh, if they know what Gladio is and they say, no. Yeah, no, they have no clue. Like most people out there um, in the streets, if you ask, I mean, do the test with your friends and and, and ask them whether they know what, what NATO's secret army is or Gladio is. And well, most would say they have never heard of it because, in fact, when I when I um, approached the subject, I went to, to some of my best professors in international history and, and contemporary history, and I asked them, do you, do you have any knowledge on, on Operation Gladio? And uh, that was at the London School of Economics and Political Science, LSE London. That was, you know, a pretty good university, and mm-hmm. these professors are widely read, and they, they're clever guys. And then and they said, oh, you know, I remember 
vaguely that in, in 1990 there was an Italy, you know, Julian Andreotti and, and there was an Italian political scandal and something emerged which, which the details I, I can't recall. So they had, they had no clue of it. And, and if the prof- professors for political science and contemporary history don't know it, I mean, how are you going to expect anybody in the street to know much about it? And that, you know, that hasn't changed until today. My book um, has reached a certain audience of a few thousand people, but uh, obviously it's not it's not um, millions that that, that read it. Yeah. <laughs> a few thousand. On, 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 what, I, what I find amazing is that, um, uh, well, I, before before I, I get into that, why do you think people like you, you just cited professors in eminent uh, universities, etc., why were they not aware of this? Is it the information wasn't available? Or, I mean, surely they had come across it or seen reference. Why, why do you think historians would have so little interest in this? Is there some kind of uh, emotional component to it where they don't want to believe what the evidence suggests or... Um, I think the main reasons for historians not to research secret warfare, it clearly is an, an, an example of secret warfare. We you know, have many examples of secret warfare during the last 70 years. The main reasons that they don't want to research secret warfare is because it's such a difficult area to research. Um, we always have a, a mixture of lies and propaganda and hard facts, and it's very hard to say, is this now hard fact or is this, is this lies or is this propaganda? Right. So um, if, if, you, if you go into this subject, you, you can burn yourself in the sense of that, you know, you will pick up a story and you think it's, it's factual, and, and then it can be that you find out, oh, no, I, I got it wrong, I got it all wrong. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a secret service who, who, who put up some stories, and, then, and I followed that mm-hmm. story. And so it, it's more, I think it's more the... the it's like a jungle, you know, it's a very big jungle with very, very dangerous animals. Mm-hmm. And they say, what, what should I go into that jungle? It's, 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 it's a mess. I don't want to go into that terrorism debate. I, uh, I don't want to go into the secret warfare debate. And so um, they stay away. But still, you know, if you look at the market, there are lots of books and from, from, from veteran soldiers who write about their you know, their lives, basically, or, or people working in the secret services who then publish their books, or, or the parliamentary reports from senators who've investigated um, the secret services, how they operate, and what's going on. So I think in the end, it's, it's possible to go into that big jungle and, 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 and find a few facts. It's possible. It, you know, it's always delicate. Yeah, well, you've certainly done a, a very good job, and you've, you've dared to go where apparently other historians dare not go, uh, and it's a very well-researched book. Uh, I don't think anybody could uh, question the, the evidence that you've presented, but maybe, maybe you can just give us a, just to start out, um, give us a, a short, and a, a short as possible description of, of what uh, Gladio or NATO's stay-behind armies were. The uh, armies were set up after World War II, so World War II ended in 1945, and then, you know, NATO was formed in 1949, so just four years after the end of the Second World War, NATO was formed. And NATO at the time had the clear task to fight communism, um, to fight the Soviet Union. But they had a problem. Uh, they were thinking if um, Western Europe is occupied by the Red Army, you know, if, if, if the Russians come and occupy Germany, France, and Italy, and, and Spain, and then all, 
all parties, uh, all, all countries, then we need to have a secret weapon. We need to have a resistance army that, you know, operates behind enemy lines. That's why you have the term stay behind. Uh, and so they set up a secret army and you will operate behind enemy lines. And that's why we give you arms caches uh, hidden in forests or in Italy, sometimes in cemeteries or on remote villages. And, and they had explosives and they had guns. And yeah, they had to work as a resistance and to blow up uh, communication structures of, of the occupying Soviet army or to blow up bridges or, you know, if you didn't have NATO pilots who fight in France against Soviet occupying France, if they were shut down, they could then exfiltrate these pilots. So that was the original idea, to just have a second option, a second card. And William Colby, who um, uh, in the 70s was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency of the American Secret Service, Foreign Secret Service, he said, he wrote this book uh, called Honorable Man, where he tried to defend the CIA. And, and you wrote that book and explained how he set up the secret armies in, in the neutral countries, in Sweden and in Finland, and that he set them up in NATO countries, in Norway uh, and in Denmark. And uh, that really was the official story, just to become active in case of a Soviet invasion. Obviously, we know today that there was no uh, such invasion, but there was the more more sinister and more darker um, option to these secret arms, and that was exactly to become active in case of emergency in the absence, in the total absence of the Soviet invasion. Yeah, it's the, if that was the justification for it, in, in the event of a Soviet invasion, what it seemed to morph into was in the event of a leftist shift in power, in any given country that had a secret army. And it, it was at this point in which these networks would become activated. Um, that, is, that is the delicate part of it, yeah. It's, it's incredible when you think of well, 14 countries, how many different, like, say, political crises, or even just, you know, routine elections that each of those countries have in that span of 40, 50 years, and how many of them were interfered with by the activists. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean that, 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 is, that is really the thing, you know. We, we, when, when you look at, at the history of, of Europe, you know, you take it from 45 you know, 2014 today, most people think of uh, Europe as just a place of peace, you know, there was no war, and there was no problem, there was no terror. It was just a place of stability. That's not true. I mean, that's, that's a very superficial look at it. Obviously, we didn't have the Vietnam War here, or we didn't have the Korean War here. We were not bombed by Iraq or Afghanistan or um, Sudan or many other countries. But uh, Europe had many problems during the Cold War. We had military coups, uh, three of them in Turkey. We had a, a right-wing dictatorship in, in Spain, in Franco, with a right-wing dictatorship in in Portugal under Salazar, and uh, we had a military coup in Greece in the in the 60s, and we had a lot of terrorist attacks in Italy in in the 60s, in the 70s, and in the 80s. We had terrorist attacks in in the 80s in Belgium and also in France, terrorist attacks. And uh, what, what researchers now try to to find out is uh, whether the secret army 
uh, organized by NATO, run by the CIA and run by MI6, had anything to do um, uh, with these um, tragic events. Because it has to be said, in all honesty, that, that, that quite a few of these secret soldiers um, were just waiting for the Soviet invasion. These were people inspired by, by the French resistance who had fought against Hitler or the Norwegian resistance which had fought against uh, the German occupation of Norway in World War II. And they thought, you know, it's, it's very possible that the Soviets come and occupy uh, our country. Now, now in, in hindsight, we know that this didn't happen, but we can't, you know, sort of say that they should have known that in the 50s. There was no chance that they, you know, they didn't have that certainty. So, you know, I always make this point that there were few... Uh, Good people in the secret armies, and we can't we can't sort of all lump them together as as, as terrorists. We, we, that would be unfair. But um, on the other hand, um, we also have the evidence, and that was the Italian um, magistrate Felice Casson. He was a judge, and he investigated acts of terrorism in Italy. And we have the evidence that uh, one specific case of, of a terrorist attack. Uh, which is uh, occurring in 1972 in the small village of Peterno in Italy, was linked, directly linked, to this uh, secret network of NATO. So uh, what Felice Casson found is that he said, uh, we had this terrorist attack in uh, 1972, a few uh, uh, people were killed in, in this attack, and, and at the time, the news, the media, television, radio, newspapers, all said, that was the extreme left uh-huh. responsible for this terrorist attack. So the general effect on the population was to discredit the communists and the socialists because they were very strong in the Italian parliament. Yeah. And, and and people said, oh, they're all terrorists, okay? And only 10 years later, uh, Felice Casson found out, oh, no, actually, this was all twisted. You know, it was all lies. It was all turned around. This terrorist attack had not been carried out by the extreme left, but it had been carried out by the extreme right. Vincenzo Vinciguerra, a terrorist who had carried out the attack, who was a member of Ordine Nuovo, uh, which is a right-wing uh, terroristic organization in Italy. And, and he confessed, you know, he confessed and he said, okay, I carried out this attack, but there is, within the secret service in Italy, a lot of support for it. Uh, in fact, there is a secret network within the secret uh, service which is uh, uh, which is linked to NATO. And um, at the time, you know, that was in the 1980s, everybody went like, you know, that's a conspiracy theory. That can't be true. It's totally impossible that the secret service would support terrorism, or it's totally impossible that NATO would set up secret armies. I mean, people couldn't, you know, imagine that. And then in 1990, um, uh, Giulio Andreotti, who was then Prime Minister of Italy, was actually forced by the Italian Senate to step forward and explain, yes, true indeed, we had a secret army in Italy. Yes, true indeed, the name of the secret army was Gladio. Yes, true indeed, um, the secret services were running this operation, uh, the American CIA and the British MI6, and, you know, set the network of World War II. And um, so we have the data that the secret armies existed. We have the data that's all confirmed that the secret armies um, were supplied and trained by CIA, MI6, and, you know, special forces like the SAS from, from the UK or the Green Bright from the US. And we know all that, but and, and NATO and CIA confirmed that they exist. But what we don't have is official 
confirmation of CIA or official confirmation of NATO that they carried out terrorism in Europe. You have to understand that this is a huge taboo. Yeah. I mean, if, I mean, if you could prove, if you could prove that NATO carried out terrorism in Europe, I mean, NATO would have to be, have to be dissolved, you know, immediately as, as a huge threat. And it would what? have serious implications for its current rationale, namely the sort of recreation of Cold War II. You need NATO to protect Europe and the U.S. against the Russian, Russian Federation, yeah. What, what I find interesting, though, Daniele, is, is there seems to be a disconnect between this rationale amongst these secret groups uh, and, and, and the NATO uh, hierarchy, uh, where they all apparently were afraid or, uh, of, of a Soviet invasion, a communist invasion of Europe, and they justified the creation of these uh, essentially terrorist groups um, to defend against a, a communist invasion. Yet in Italy, during the period that we're talking about in the, in the 70s and 80s, the Communist Party and the Socialist Party in, um, in Italy were very strong, reflecting yeah. a, 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 the kind of a consensus amongst the people uh, who apparently weren't afraid of the communists and actually supported them. Yeah, they, that's the problem that NATO has, you know. They had, on the one hand, they had the, the, the Soviets in, in Moscow, um, you know, that all the atomic weapons, uh, you know, aimed against them. There, were, there was a real battle between the two groups. And on the other hand, they had elected communist member of parliament in Italy, in France, in Belgium, and a few other countries. Mm. And, and they said, if these members, you know, imagine Italy, you know, this is a a member of parliament who, who then becomes, um, uh, gets the chance to go into the executive branch, but become uh, a minister and, you know, minister of the interior or minister of defense even. And they just sort of shocked by even this thought. It never happened. It never happened. But they, they thought it could happen. And then we have a communist Italian defense minister. Mm. And that'd be nightmare number one, because he would then just phone Stalin or Khrushchev or Brezhnev or, or who was in charge in Moscow and tell them all, uh, all the secrets of NATO because as defense minister of Italy, he obviously had access to NATO secrets. Mm-hmm. And, and this was this sort of, of thinking that you could not have um, the communists in the Italian government. And in fact, when Aldo Moro, who was a member of the Democrazia Cristiana, which is a center uh, government uh, in Italy said, we should have the communist in government, uh, he was killed. And the, the, the whole idea of, of preventing um, communists in Italy from coming to executive power positions was, 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 was very, very, very far-reaching in Italy. And, and, and the problem is that if you have such a problem, you know, if you, if you know, let's imagine you and me are NATO generals, okay, it's, it's hard to imagine, but let's just try it. Because that's what we have to do as historians. We'll have to think in, in the head of somebody else. And we think, okay, we're now NATO generals. We're fighting the Soviets. And we see that in Italy, the communists are very strong. Then, and that's a working assumption. Then the idea is, okay, we have this secret army in Italy. And why, why don't we take the secret army and, 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 you know, blow up a few bombs, kill a few people, um, and, and then say, you know, the communists did it, and that will really discredit them very badly, and on that basis, we can keep them out of government. 
And that is called the strategy of tension. And that is something which, which an Italian magistrate, and so there's a judge in Italy, uh, he discovered it. And, and that, he actually blew Felice Cassano. He, he blew the whole scandal. Yeah. But the question here for me is, um, I mean, it seems to me that they weren't afraid of a communist ideology. You say, you say in your book, and it's true, that uh, at a certain point it became clear that there would be no communist uh, or Russian uh, Soviet invasion of um, of Europe, but they continued on with these actions to discredit uh, leftist groups and communist groups in Europe uh, to keep them out of power. Uh, and I don't really think that I can't believe that this was just a purely ideological uh, battle for these people. I mean, obviously there was some something they were fighting against in terms of uh, a communist or leftist government coming to power in, in European countries, how that, would, uh, how that would negatively affect these you know, Western uh, American-aligned uh, power brokers. I mean, what did they stand to lose if uh, a communist party or, uh, a communist, or a communist or leftist yeah. government, or even just a leftist government came to power in, in European countries? What was the problem with that? I mean, it didn't, it didn't include... Uh, an inevitable communist uh, uh, invasion of Europe. So, um, the, the the fear of Washington, um, I think, was that, that that some countries might even leave NATO. I mean, take uh, take Norway. I mean, there was there was there was the idea at some point that you could have Norway, Denmark, Finland, and Sweden as a nuclear arms free zone. Uh, that was an idea um, that the Swedish, uh, who are not member of NATO, still are not member of NATO, uh, put forward and said, um, you know, let's let's try that. Let's try to have, have this nuclear-free zone. So you you did not only have the communists, you also had the peace movement, which is always very critical of NATO. Mm. And I said, and, uh, we we don't need all this military spending. We don't need all these arms in Europe. And we don't want these, these, these pursuing missiles. We, we, there's many things we don't want. And once you have, you know, a population which goes against um, the Vietnam War and, and goes against NATO and, and, and basically says, you know, uh, we shouldn't kill each other, and all, all, all these ideas of the peace movement, mm-hmm. uh, if, 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 if they get very strong, then as a NATO general, once again, let's think as a NATO general, then you just blow up a bomb somewhere in Rome or in, in Milan or in Bologna, and then you say, wait, you know, the world is full of terrorists, and now we're here to protect you. It's like the fireman who sets fire to your house, mm-hmm. and then the next morning comes over and says, hey, gee, you know, very good, you know, that you have a fire department here in the city. We need an extra thousand dollars from you um, to support our work. So you create the problem, and you present yourself as a solution, and it's, it's a very diabolic um, uh, strategy, but, but if you come to think of it, it works. I mean, what I, what I, what I tried to do then is, um, I looked at, do we have any evidence that, that Pentagon, Pentagon General signed anything like that? Uh, because obviously we have, we have Italian judges who say, okay, uh, the Americans created terrorism in Europe. We have Italian members of the, of the secret services even. You know, you have to imagine that in Italy, you then had trials. So trials on, 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 on these terrorist attacks. And then the Secret Services from Italy had to, to stand there, and they had to, uh, they were accused that they had carried out terrorist 
participate in the country. Uh, and, and, and people were outraged and were like, why did you kill children and women? And I mean, what sort of secret service are you to go out there and kill people, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the members of the Italian secret service, one was uh, Dandelio Maletti, he said, you know, I, 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 I tried to keep that secret for, for many years, and now Prime Minister Andreotti comes forward and tells it to Parliament. It's incredible. Uh, and, and, and others said, um, the Americans have asked us to do this, you know, to fight uh, and discredit the, the left in Italy and to, to, to increase the strength of NATO. But for historians like me, it is very, very complicated to, to find a document a Pentagon document that would give support to the theory that the Pentagon indeed uses strategy of tension. I mean, the whole debate is strategy of tension debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, carry terrorist attack, blame somebody else. And the one document I found is uh, Operation Northwood. Um, you're probably yeah. familiar with it. Should, should, I, should I quickly explain what it is? Yeah. Operation Northwood was an operation uh, in, 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 in the Caribbean in the 1960s. The idea of the U.S. at the time was uh, to, to have a regime change in Cuba and overthrow the government of Fidel Castro. And so what they did is in 1961, they had the Bay of Pigs invasion carried out by the CIA. Um, it was uh, obviously illegal, um, but they did it and it failed. Okay, the Bay of Pigs invasion by the CIA failed in 1961. And then um, the Pentagon sort of said, well, the CIA messed it up. Um, now we have a good plan because we're much cleverer than the CIA people. We are here people at the Pentagon. And the Pentagon generals drew up this plan and said, let's explode an American ship, blow it up on Guantanamo Bay, which is... Um, the American U.S. military base in Cuba. And that was a, a very, you know, diabolic idea again. You know, blow up your own ship and then blame Peter Castro for it. And say, oh, you know, Peter Castro blew it up. And this is, again, the same trick of the fireman that I said before. Set fire to the house and then present yourself as the solution. And the, the second idea, it was not only the idea to blow up uh, a ship, the second idea of Operation Northwoods was, um, let's take planes, civilian planes, fly them over Cuba, and then blow them up. So there would be drones. You know, you wouldn't put people in them. But you planes, blow them up and say, in the American, uh, you know, television, say, okay, Fidel Castro shot down planes, and in these planes we had American girls who wanted to go to Bolivia to help the poor people there. So if you, you know, if you connect a very strong story with a false flag terrorist uh, attack, then you have everybody in shock. And then mm-hmm. people go like, oh, let's invade Fidel Castro's Cuba and overthrow this dictator. He's really bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and the third idea was to carry out terrorist attacks in, in Miami and uh, in Washington and then prepare fake documents that would say, you know, these were communists, these were um, Cubans. Now, this is Operation Northwoods, and we have the original documents, and we know that the Pentagon's, uh, Pentagon generals, the highest members of the Pentagon, uh, this is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, they signed it. That was Lyndon Blenitzer. And then Kennedy, as a time president, he didn't want it. You know, at the time he was really fighting the military-industrial complex, and he said, we don't want that. Um, and Lenitzer was then transferred to Europe as Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. So he was actually going to Europe and worked within NATO at a time when he was before in the U.S. 
thinking about strategy of tension terrorism in, in Cuba. And the European researchers now try to find out, is it possible that Pentagon generals have carried out a strategy of tension terrorism in Europe? And we can't prove it. We just have, you know... Um, circumstantial evidence. Yeah, circumstantial evidence. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we've never had um, a, a U.S. officer coming forward and saying, I'm sorry, we did it. Yeah. That's bad. Never. Although there's been, Never plenty, there's been plenty of people in Europe who have come come forward and yeah. say that. But just yeah. just to just to link that back to what I was saying earlier on, then uh, it seems that the, this strategy of tension and NATO stay behind armies and their kind of you know funding of terrorist groups to attack civilian populations. This wasn't for um, really to, to fight against the, the spread of communism over Europe, but rather to maintain uh, Europe as essentially in the in the western sphere of influence and also to ensure that it remains on a, on a kind of a, a militarized war footing which ultimately generates money for the arms manufacturers yes it's always you know if we, if we have you know bombs that drop on syria if we have bombs in ukraine if we have bombs on iraq they're lockheed martin and boeing and Raytheon. They always profit from it. War is a business. That, that's something I explain to my students all the time. I tell them, get rid of this nonsense idea that war is some sort of a project to help the poor or help women or help the elderly. They suffer. They suffer tremendously in wars. You have more, you know, you have more rape in wars always because, you know, soldiers go completely mad and start to rape women. And you go like, well, you know, wasn't the war meant to help women? I go, no, no, no. The whole, the war was never meant to help to, to help anybody. War has always been a tool to help the defense industry once, and second, to you know, to to gain influence, to change the shift of power, you know, to overthrow a government that you don't like, to install a new government that you like, and then control a country like. Iran, or, or, or you know, where you had a, a coup d'état in 1953 by the CIA. So we're going through all these episodes of, of history of the last 70 years, and we find a lot of data that secret warfare is real. Okay, secret warfare. These are wars that are not declared. Mm -hmm. You don't read them in the press, and it says, you know, tomorrow the CIA and the MI6 are going to overthrow the government of Mossadegh in Iran because you know they nationalized the oil, and that's no good. We want the oil, and that's therefore we are overthrowing. You know, you don't have that in the news. In the news, you have, you know, the first novel of Ian Fleming, and you can read it on the, the stories about James Bond, but that's fiction, okay? Mm -hmm. And in the real world, we have similar things that are happening, but with, that, with no accountability, you know, there's nobody, it's always illegal and criminal, but, you know, they, they, they got away with a lot of that stuff. There's a, there's a fantastic, um, a horribly fantastic, if I can use that term, uh, quote in your book uh, from uh, one of these right-wing terrorists uh, in Italy, Vinci Guerra, uh, he said that you had to attack civilians, the people, women, children, innocent people, unknown people far removed from any political gain. The reason was quite simple. They were supposed to force these people, the Italian public, to turn to the state to ask for greater security. Yeah. Yeah, but the correct, that, that quote is correct. And, and keep in mind, Vinci Guerra was the man who carried out the terrorist attack in Pegano. Uh -huh. So he was one who knows 
the strategy of tension. Again, the strategy of tension uh, is, 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 very, is, is a diabolic strategy. You really carry out a terrorist attack, you blame somebody else for it. Like you, let, let's put it that way. I, you know, I blow up a bomb and then just blame my neighbor. My neighbor will have a huge problem to explain that he didn't blow up the bomb if I put, you know, his passport next to it or, or whatever, his car, you know, just some, some incriminating evidence. And, and, and then I need the media. That's all I need. The, me, the media must tell my story to the whole world. And then people will be shocked and they'll believe it. And, 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 and only 10 years later, um, historians like I come and say, hey, we found out. It's totally impossible that this man carried the bomb there. It's, 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 it has to be a lie. And, and it is very difficult for us to reconstruct strategy of tension. But the quote that you just gave is an original quote which shows that terrorism exists and we have terrorism in the form of state terrorism, manipulated state terrorism. I'm not saying all terrorist attacks are state-sponsored. I'm not saying that. I'm saying some of the terrorist attacks that we've had during the last 70 years were state-sponsored. And today, historians have to go through all these terrorist attacks again and find out, okay, gee, there's a lot of terrorism we had. Which one was state-sponsored? Which one was, was carried out by agents of the Secret Service who were actually trying to protect us, to protect the population? You, you say... Um that we have no hard evidence for any of this, that the, uh, or no hard evidence that the Pentagon or the U.S. government or the CIA were directly involved in this. But we, I mean, it strikes me from reading some of the details in your book uh, that we don't really need it because there's one, um, you make mention of, uh, in March 2001, uh, General Maletti, who was a former head of Italian counterintelligence, yep. uh, talking about the, the, the Gladio Secret Army, uh, he said that the massacres which had discredited the Italian communists had also been supported by the White House in Washington and the U.S. Yeah. Uh, Secret Service, the CIA. Yeah. Uh, he said, I mean, that's, one, that's one of those quotes, you know, John Dillian Maletti says, and not, you know, in private conversation with his wife at 12 o'clock at night, but in public, in Italy, under huge pressure, you know, in the trial of Piazza Fontana, the Piazza Fontana is a place in Milano, where we had terrorist attack, and um, and he says, yeah, I mean, keep in mind the American government, the White House, and especially Nixon. He, he says Nixon was a strange man, <laughs> and, and he goes as far as to say that Nixon promoted terrorism in Italy. Now he he should have, he says it in a way that they don't shoot him right away, but he says it in a way that historians who read his testimony, they go like, Jesus Christ, did he just say? Nixon sponsored terrorism. Did he just say that? Mm-hmm. And then we read, we read the quote again, and he basically says that. And you know, it is, it is probably mm, a form of racism that here in Europe we've been thinking that okay, yes, of course the Americans have bombed Iraq. <laughs> yes, they have overthrown the government in Chile in 1973. Oh yes, they have mm, in. Uh, you know, supported the contract in Nicaragua in the 80s, and, and yes, they've overthrown the Guatemalan government in 1954, and of course they've bombed Vietnam and Cambodia, and, you know, they would certainly not, you know, do such things in Europe, and and, and that's it's very deep in, in, in European 
academics had that we research these cases in Africa or in Latin America or in Southeast Asia, and we go like, well, gee, that's gruesome. But we, we know this thing that it could have happened in Europe because it was this idea that we're friends. And, and among friends, you wouldn't do it. And, 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 and then you see that within NATO, it was not just friends. It was a huge battle for, for who runs the shop and who, who, who decides. And there, the Americans, um, it seems, you know, it seems support terrorism in Europe. But, but, but when I say today, still in lectures, you know, people go like, oh, that's all conspiracy theories. And then I say, no, no, it's not a conspiracy theory. We have Operation Gladio. And then people go like, ah, oh, Operation Gladio. But we know that that was just for self-defense in case of a Soviet invasion. The Soviet invasion never came, so it's no problem. I said, no, it's not that simple. We have specific cases of terrorist attacks where right-wing extremists testify that they were protected by the secret services, and the members of the secret services testify that they were um, supported by members of the American establishment from the White House and the American Secret Service and from the Pentagon. So um, it's not hard proof. I can't call it hard proof. But as you said, it's circumstantial evidence that we have U.S. terrorism in Europe. Well, I don't know, because, I mean, just <laughs> again from your book, uh, you say that uh, you called an, an Italian parliamentary commission that investigated yeah. Gladio and the Italian massacres. Uh, this was this, uh, the commission was uh, concluded in, in the year 2000 that those massacres, those bombs, those military actions had been organized or promoted or supported by men inside Italian state institutions and has, as has been discovered more recently by men linked to the structures of United States intelligence. And this is from the an Italian parliamentary uh, commission. So, I mean, are yes. they conspiracy theorists too? No, no, of course not. They're not. This is, this is hard data. This is historical fact. But keep in mind, you can't talk about these things with many people. Many people will go mad. They go like, this means, you know, that the NSA has not only spied on the handy of Angela Merkel in Germany, because everybody's like, we know that, and Obama said they wouldn't do it, and then they did it. But it's, you know, it's, it's another thing if you, if, you, if you set up totalitarian surveillance. I mean, it's not a good thing either, but, I mean, it's, if you kill people with a terrorist attack, it, it's worse. It's clearly worse. It's people like, is it possible? And, you know, I've debated it with many colleagues, and these, these are, you know, highly trained academics, and I've told them, do you think, can you imagine that the Pentagon or the CIA or the MI6 um, from the UK would kill people um, in other countries of Europe with uh, the strategy of tension? At most, just from their gut feeling, I've said, no, 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 I can't, I can't imagine that. And then I've, I've shown them, I had the uh, quote, like the one that you said, from the Italian Senate, and the Italian Senate has spent a lot of time investigating these uh, secret operations, and they know the truth, okay? They, they, they've really found out the data, but they couldn't publish the names. So in that quote, you don't have a specific name of a specific person and a specific date of attack. It's a very general phrase which says, U.S. terrorism in Italy is a fact. And the, 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 the problem is that we can't go and say, oh, here it says Henry Kissinger in the National Security Council meeting of that uh, date argued for strategy of tension in Italy. We don't have that specific data. And that's why I still say it is circumstantial evidence. I, I think it's, it's, it's solid evidence, but, um, you know, standing, uh, 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 you know, under rather strong pressure. I mean, I, I, I filed the Freedom of Information Act with the CIA. 
this is a, a law which allows you to get all the data from the CIA uh, on all CIA uh, operations uh, during, during CIA's history, during you know, during the last, I mean, was created in '47. And, and then I said, give me the data on Operation Gladiator. And then CIA wrote back, um, sorry, can't give you that data, it's top secret. And I said, well, you know, we have a lot of data anyway here in Europe, because I, I read Italian, and a lot of this data is just in Italian. And some is in French, and some is in German. And so the American scholars don't, don't read these different languages. But I'm Swiss, and we, we speak quite a few languages, just because our country is made up of three languages. So then I, then I read these Italian documents, and I, I write back to the CIA, and I say, um, please give me the data because then you can participate in a, dis in a discourse on Operation Gladio. And this discourse will take place anyway. And then they write back and say, no, we can't give you any data. So the CIA is not transparent. They don't. They will never admit that they carried out terrorism in Italy. The second thing I did is I wrote to NATO. And then NATO said, oh, we can't give you any uh, details on Operation Gladio. And I said, why not? And I said, yeah, well, Switzerland is not a NATO country. And I, and I said, well, <laughs> I mean, we're surrounded by NATO countries, and, and, and I'd like to have some more details. And I said, okay, hand in a letter to the Partnership of Peace office, because Switzerland is a member of Partnership for Peace. And that's a stupid name for a sort of yeah. kindergarten, for, for a kindergarten of NATO, for, for countries who are not NATO members yet, but NATO would like to have them in NATO soon. And then, and, you know, I, I wrote a letter, and I gave them all the details uh, on the specifics that I was researching. And I said, it didn't exist. It never existed. And that's a lie. Okay, NATO just says Operation Gladio never existed. And so, and, and they, that is incredible. You really have to keep in mind that CIA and NATO don't like the Gladio story at all. Yeah, and to this day, that is their official line. Um, their official line was uh, on, on, in 1990 when the Italian uh, Prime Minister Julian Dolce said uh, we have the secret army in Italy and it existed also in France and in Greece and in Belgium and everywhere. <laughs> People were totally shocked in many countries. Uh, uh, then NATO said um, we um, have never had secret armies. We don't do guerrilla warfare. We don't do secret warfare. And on the next day, a NATO spokesman had to come forward and say what we said yesterday was wrong very sorry for it. Uh, we can't give you any further information because that's uh, military secret. <laughs> wow. and, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it, you ask yourself, what, what, what world are we living in? Yeah, yeah it's so Orwellian. <laughs> we can neither confirm nor deny what we just said yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. yes. You know, in, in the end, you have to take it with a punch of, of, of irony because otherwise it'd be completely, you yeah, know, you can't really support it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, just, when we, when we talk about these terrorist attacks perpetrated by essentially NATO uh, in Europe during the 60s, 70s, and 80s, uh, in I mean, I mean, we're not talking about small scale, like one or two people killed. And some of them, these are major uh, terror attacks. I mean, for example, uh, Bologna was 80 people killed. I think, right? Yeah, Bologna with 80 people. The problem is, I, I have to repeat that, that we can't link NATO directly to Bologna. We can link Bologna to right-wing terrorists. We can link the right-wing terrorists to the Italian Secret Service. And we can link the, the Italian Secret Service to NATO. That's what we can do. But the problem is that NATO then always comes forward and says, oh, gee, these were just runaway crazy guys on the lower level. Okay? They never, we don't have written data 
where you have a NATO Supreme Allied Commander Europe who says, please blow up a bomb in yeah. Bologna train set. We don't have that. Yeah. And that makes it very difficult for, for historians to, to nail it down. I mean, to, to really say, okay, come on, what have you done? I mean, it's the same thing with the Brabant Massacre. I have to maybe quickly explain what the Brabant Massacre is. I wish to shift away from Italy and go to Belgium for a moment. In the 19, 1980s, in Belgium, you had a series of, 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 of shootings, of killings, of assassinations, which were carried out by highly trained gunmen. They drew, drove to supermarkets and just shut everybody down there. You know, women, children, elderly, they just didn't care. And they didn't even take the money from the supermarket. So they were not robbers, but they, 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 were, they were gunmen to, 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 who wanted to terrorize Belgium. And they even went that far that sometimes they drove away and then the police followed them. So they waited for the police and shot the police too. I mean, these guys were really, you know, very nasty. And now in Belgium, you have a debate because Belgium is the headquarter of NATO in Europe. You have a debate whether these terrorist attacks in, on the Belgian supermarkets, which are so-called the Brabant Massacre, that's how they're called, but they were carried out by the stay behind but they were uh, carried out by NATO. And once again, you have to keep in mind that this is ongoing research. There's no definitive proof of one or the other version. But it is very, very difficult for the Belgians, as it was for the Italians, to find out that there was a secret army in Belgium. Now we have the confirmation that it existed. It was, his code name was SDR8, so different name than Gladio in Italy. But there was a secret army. It was linked to NATO. It was trained by CIA. It was trained by MS6. Um, uh, it was uh, assisted by the Special Air Service of the British and uh, the, the Green Berets by the Americans. So they were trained in covert action operations. But we still don't know whether the Obama's workers were NATO terrorists. But it could be. It really could be. But think of it. I mean, think of a NATO operation killing people in supermarkets. How bizarre is that? We do know that those same... SAS and U.S. Special Forces were doing that exact kind of thing in places like Latin America. That's it. We know that, yes. But there I always say, oh, yes, I mean, these are just Latinos, kill them. Oh, yes, these are just Africans, kill them. Oh, yes, Vietnamese, kill them. You know, there is racism in research that if, if you kill somebody in Belgium, it's not the same that if you kill somebody in Sierra Leone. It's not the same. And this has to do with the, the, the discourse that we have in NATO countries. And the discourse basically is that we kill people outside of NATO. Okay. And, and you know, we bomb, we bomb the Iraqis. Or, uh, you know, I, I researched the language of the soldiers. And um, American soldiers in Iraq used phrases like, shoot the fucking sandmaker. Sorry for the language, but that's a direct quote. Yeah. And what does it mean? It means that the other human being um, has no right to live anyway. He's, he's, he's something like a cockroach. And that's the same thing that we had in Rwanda. You know? I'm very active in peace research. And, and we always have the same thing. First, you, you lose the right to be a human being, you lose to, the right to, to be alive through the language. It happened also to, to, to the Jews during World War II. You know? They were considered animals. And then you just gas them, or it happened to the uh, to the policemen in Germany in the uh, during the uh, Hotel Mehrkoktion. The Hotel Mehrkoktion was a German uh, left-wing terrorist organization, and they said, 
policemen are pigs. And then pigs, you can slaughter pigs, right? And, and it's always in the language where human beings are sort of put on a level of ready to kill, death row, basically. And in, in, this, in this lingo, we know that we had strategy of tension in, in, in Chile. We know that we had it in Latin America, many places. We know that uh, Cambodia was, was bombed illegally and that, that Nixon altered the manipulated the, 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 the entries of the Air Force to say that the, drops, the bombs were dropped in Vietnam, whereas in fact there were, some of them were dropped in Cambodia, but that you know, would have been illegal, so they just changed the, the data. And we know all these things, but still when we talk about Operation Gladio, well, when we talk about NATO and the terrorism in Europe, it, it's like a, a massacre in, the, in your own family. Yeah, yeah, so so in dismissing the idea that uh, you know white westerners in power would kill white western civilians, um, women, uh, children, women and children, yeah, they um, they evoke a, a kind of latent racism within western populations that uh, you know that it's okay to kill them in other countries far off with brown colored or you know whatever uh, skinned people, um, and of course if you mention the Second World War and the Jews, uh, as you just did, uh, the Holocaust, um, that was, of course, a crazed uh, Nazi regime with Hitler, the madman. So that could be dismissed as well. But as you mentioned in your book, when uh, it was brought up, when the Gladio and strategy of tension and NATO's stay-behind armies was brought up um, in Germany, uh, it, was, it was on a, on a private television channel, uh, RTL, uh, announced that the German uh, that, that the German operation of Gladio uh, had included former members of Hitler's special forces. Yeah, that's true, and that's true. You yeah. evidence is here. We have that evidence. Nazis in NATO secret armies. Yeah, I mean, but it's a bizarre world, isn't it? But I mean, when we talk about uh, this kind of racism, I mean, there's a lot of evidence from Northern Ireland that um, that the British. Uh, military intelligence and uh, civilian intelligence uh, agencies during the so-called troubles in Northern Ireland were were involved in uh, carrying out these kind of uh, attacks on civilians in order to defame or to, uh, to blame the the IRA, for example. And just talking about the UK in your book as well, when when it was brought up uh, in the early 90s, just in 1990 or 1991, uh, the then British Defence Secretary Tom King had to handle those kind of questions from reporters about Gladio and NATO stay behind armies. And he, um, he kind of joked about it and dismissed it kind of thing. And there was also um, the fact that the Operation Desert Storm had just been uh, announced. Uh, yeah. so that, that kind of pushed Gladio off the, off the papers. But it's interesting to me anyway, because I'm from Northern Ireland, that, yeah. um, that Tom King, the defense uh, secretary at the time, who dismissed these Gladio uh, questions from from the reporters. He had just uh, come from a post in Margaret Thatcher's uh, government, which was just the year before in, in 1989. Uh, he was the Northern Ireland secretary, so he came uh, from being the Northern Ireland secretary and overseeing at that time uh, effectively a kind of gladio-style operation in Northern Ireland, where a strategy of tension was used to to divide the communities and to uh, discredit the uh, groups like the political parties like Sinn Féin and, uh, and the IRA. Um, 
and then, I think I think we can learn a lot if we look at these details. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, if we look at, at the conflict in Northern Ireland, you you, you know, probably know more about it than I do. But one one element which struck me was um, this military reaction force. It was called MRF. That was that was um, a secret force um, um, of, of, of 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 British soldiers, but they were in plain clothes. Uh, and they had guns with uh, silencers uh, on them, and they patrolled through Belfast. And their job was to to shoot IRA terrorists. So they um, plain clothes, military people uh, uh, walking around in Belfast. And you know, some, sometimes they shot a real terrorist, and sometimes they they got the wrong man and, and just shot him. Mm-hmm. And and then you ask yourself, wait a moment, that's British tax money, mm-hmm. and they give that to the assassins. And, and 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 these assassins then kill people. I mean, it's already hard to pay taxes, right? But when you know that your taxes is is is, is really going to assassin, assassin who are not, they are not um, accountable because they're in plain clothes. So if you walk around in Belfast, you you think you know this is just gangs. <laughs> and then later, only years later, you find out, Jesus Christ, some of them were gangs in the sense of these were. Were, were young men, angry, with no job, and, you know, they, they started to kill each other. I mean, they do that. I mean, if, if they're 18, they have no job, and they, they're really angry because their friend's been shot. They, they don't need a state to sponsor you. You can, you can, you can get angry yourself. I mean, it's, it's possible. But not everybody was just, was just um, uh, a gang. Some of them were agents of the state. And, and if I look at that, then the, the, the military reaction force, MRF, I remember that name, operating in Northern Ireland, was a state terrorist organization. Mm-hmm. And, and I always, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struck at the level of, of superficial discourse that we have today, that we always go like, no, we wouldn't do that. And, you know, it has never happened, or a democratic state would never use terrorism to reach an aim. And I said, that's just nonsense. If you look at the French, what did they do? They, in 1985, they wanted to test nuclear bombs in the Pacific. And then this Greenpeace organization, which is an environmental organization, said, we don't want to have nuclear tests um, above the ground in the Pacific. So they had a ship, which is called uh, Rainbow Warrior, and they drove into that testing zone with their ship. And then, um, uh, you know, obviously the French couldn't do their nuclear test. Greenpeace had the ship exactly there where they wanted to explode the bomb. And then the French uh, president, uh, Mitterrand, he was a socialist, by the way, uh, he said, well, that's not good. We have a ship in the way. Somebody get rid of that ship. And then he, he said to his defense minister, uh, Pierre-Henri, uh, get rid of that ship. And then he said, okay, I have to go to the, the boss of the Secret Service, Admiral Pierre Lacoste. And the boss of the Secret Service said, okay, I have to go, you know, to my agents of the Direction General de Sécurité Extérieure, DJC, that's the French DA. And they just, you know, had, had um, people who, who went to the ship, put a bomb on the ship and then blew it up. I mean, that's terrorism. And that's state terrorism, French state terrorism. And it's just many in academia close their eyes and say, no, we have no state terrorism. And that's really, that's a problem because... If we're blind uh, uh, towards state terrorism, we'll not understand what happened during the last 20 years. We'll, we'll never understand it. It's part of the problem of this violence that we're all trapped in. I'm not saying everything is state terrorism. That's that's nonsense. But we need to we need to understand that many on on the higher levels of defense ministers, um, as uh, Tom Hague or, 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 or in the in the secret services, they are convinced that you can somehow 
and do a violent management, you know, a bit terrorism there, a bit warlike here, and, and they will, you know, provide some good results. And, and in fact, it doesn't. I think part of the the mental, emotional block of people, ordinary people and academics who have access to far more information, the block they come against is, oh, geez, well, we're talking about a conspiracy here. I can think of a conspiracy, yeah, like a, a local one where, you know, party A wants to come into power and conspires against party B. But this is so big and it's so, we're talking about a large number of people, a large number of weapons and a lot of money. And over 40 years, because the story really only broke in 1990. So I think when people try to, to do the, the, the arithmetic in their heads, that's probably where they go, uh, no, this, this can't be true. Now, that's it. Yeah. So they, they, prefer, they prefer to sort of block themselves from certain facts instead of having a one heavy disappointment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I tell all my students, why don't you go through this one heavy disappointment, which basically tells you that some things are very nasty out there. It's not only in James Bond. It's really out there that you have secret warfare, you have manipulated terrorism, and, and we have the data to prove it. And, 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 you know, it makes you sad. At the end of the day, it makes you sad. And you realize, what place do I live in and why is it like that? But once you've gone through this certain sadness and depression, um, you wake up again, and you have a much more, you have a clearer vision. You know, you you are not, you're not sort of blocked by 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 following the mainstream media every day. And you know, they they tell you now we have to bomb this country or that country. You go like, oh, why? Is that now true? Is it false? What's going on? Who's who's this terrorist organization I've never heard of, which is now the biggest threat worldwide? And they, it gives you it gives you your it gives you back your your thinking basically. Your, and that's what German philosopher uh, Immanuel Kant once said. He said, sapere aude, as in Latin, it basically means use your brain. I mean, be an independent human being. Be a dignity and, and you know, don't, don't get fooled every day. I mean, that's, that's it's, it's no dignity, man. And the truth sets you free, as I say. Yeah. Daniele, thank you so much for being on this today. Thank you very much for, for an interesting conversation and yeah. um, good luck to you. Do you have any further uh, uh, plans for any any updates on on this on this story? I mean, I follow secret warfare generally. You know, I, I look at it. I look at the 9/11 debate. I look at the Ukrainian debate. I look at uh, Syria. I look at uh, Libya because I want to tell people also that it's only a very small minority of human beings who are engaged in this secret warfare. If you take one percent of, of the world population that would make it seventy million people mm. who carry out these attacks, who who conspire and then and, and blow up the things and really kill and, and maim. It's only seventy million people. That's one percent of the world population. Now the problem is that this one percent can do a lot of damage. That's mm. true. Uh, seventy million armed people shooting around raping that you know, you, you can see the mess. Yeah. But um <laughs> but I'm saying it's only one percent and you know there's a lot of people out there who don't want it, who don't like it and who try to to, to get access to 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 you know uh, research that actually you know shows how this whole thing works and then you can still there's still reason to be positive so that's maybe my conclusion i don't want people to be negative once they've heard of secret warfare uh, and strategy of tension and manipulated terrorism yes it exists yes we have the data for it but uh, i also want to mention this 
that human beings, I think, are, are wonderful creatures. They, they can help each other, they can love each other, they can support each other, and it's not that they're all terrorists. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll let you go, Daniela, and thanks again for being on, and, and thanks for writing your book because it's extremely valuable, and everybody who's listening to the show should really uh, consider getting themselves a copy because it lays out in very, very stark and plain detail exactly the kind of uh, reality we live in and this um, this 1% and what they're capable of. So get the book. Okay. Thanks a lot for your help. Okay. Daniel. All the best. Thank Take Bye-bye. care. Bye. I think we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. So thanks to Daniele Ganser. He's been a great guest and he's done some great work. We'll be back next week with another show. Same time, same place. See you then. All right, folks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Iran is rising in power and influence. The Iranian leadership hates the big Satan America and the West, and yet the West goes to war against places like Iraq that Saddam Hussein used to be the head of. And today, they don't back the Iranian people's revolution to oust their oppressive mullahs and Islamic regime. So the question we're going to be asking on the show today is why. Why does the West say they want to spread democracy and yet they are pumping up rebels who are taking out more Western-friendly dictators and replacing it with the Muslim Brotherhood? Here to give us an in-depth, factual, and historical overview of the situation is our guest, Dr. Francisco Gill-White. Now, Dr. Gil White is an anthropologist who specializes in the Arab-Israeli conflict, anti-Semitism, U.S. geopolitical behavior, and the operation of the Western mass media. He edits the website Historical and Investigative Research, where he writes documented articles on geopolitical behavior with a special emphasis on its repercussions for the state of Israel. Our guest, Dr. Francisco Gill-White. Thank you, Tamar. We're seeing regime changes around... Oh, we're not going to listen to that. No, we're not going to listen to that. I already listened to that one. In fact, I even talked to this guy by email, and we're not on the same page. Sorry about that. Anyways, where were we at with all this? Oh, okay. What do I want to play now? I don't feel like talking. I don't feel like reading. My eyes are wacky today from my MS. And... Get rid of that, at least.
anyways, a little bit of a perspective there of about how uh, NATO is involved with false flag operations, even from the get-go, long before us. All right. There's Dogs of War. I would do the PMC. All right. A new kind of killing forces burst onto the world's battlefields. They take 20th century weapons into third world countries. They're South Africa's apartheid soldiers or executive outcomes. The new South Africa still has much that's not so new. In the mining world, opportunities are scarcer than ever. Are mining executives now sending mercenaries to win mineral rights through war? Until recently, Ian Barlow commanded the mercenaries. He's implicated in a worldwide web of war, greed, and intrigue. <laughs> felt the end of an era for South African Special Forces soldiers. After years of combat in the bitter bush wars against the ANC, many soldiers found it impossible to return to ordinary life. This photograph is of the four people raped with missing. And this was the last day that they actually were seen alive. That was the day that they left. Dorf went missing in Kamekzulu, and it's over there in the Linda Norse area. He said that if he was told to go and fight, he wouldn't do such a thing. 
considering this stupid enough to put his life on line for the amount of money that he got. Morris still keeps Dolph's things, sent back from Angola after the battle in which he disappeared. I don't like the word mercenary because I can't place Dolph or see him as a mercenary. He was the most gentlest person um, alive, I think, and he wasn't a killer. When we lost Dolph and Tonga, it was approximately on the 2nd of April 1934. We had to attack a town, I would roughly say, approximately 30 kilometers south of the Zairean border. And we had 80 bombs to fire into the enemy base. But we drew, we drew fire, enemy fire, I saw traces going in and out the helicopter, smoke and all fumes of the petrol. Uh, coming out of the, the, the helicopter, and we know it was hit very, very, very badly. Dio's burned-out helicopter was poured over by the victorious Unita rebels. It was one of their biggest scoops ever. The big question for Mari is, did they take any prisoners that day? Yeah, Unique video footage obtained by the producers shows for the first time ever executive outcomes mercenaries in the front-line positions they don't admit they go into. It's end for my head and that's for my feet. If the mortars come, I just climb in there. It's not so deep. It's about a meter under the ground. There's my Bible and there's my torch. Everyone has dug holes around here. And when the bombs fall, they fall just there, over there, by that tree. <laughs> These sleepy Pretoria suburbs the New South Africa remains only a distant reality. It's also where executive outcomes is based. Behind bars, whitewashed walls and security cameras, is an organization which has dispatched mercenaries to fight all over the world. Linked to apartheid's notorious death squads, there can be few people with as many secrets as even Barlow. Okay. Okay, sure. Okay, so Thursday night, I fly from Johannesburg to the other place which you know about, and I'll speak to you from there. I can't talk because I've got people with me. A bit later, I'll fly from that place to the other place we've already talked about. Adept at manipulating his public image, Barlow trades a delicate tightrope. On the one hand, he needs to advertise his real skills, his combat skills. On the other, the public must believe what he does is merely to train soldiers. But the truth is that what Executive Outcomes does do best is fight. Often we come under fire, and we come under fire wherever we work. Um, we are contracted by governments that have conflict, internal conflict. Everyone in the company knows that we are employed in high-risk areas, and therefore we are armed. All the Zigzag mission 
was the first mission we had to to do. We had to attack. It was a Scottish hospital with a few guards guarding the hospital, and um, we thought it was an easy target. Easy target. Sitting duck. Totally shoot. Good. What you want? So when all of us were employed by EO, on, on that, on these commander type operations, the, we, we never used any uh, personnel of the MPLA or the government forces. It was small groups to be fitted into one or two helicopters. in the Middle East, capital of the United Arab Emirates and jewel on the Arab Peninsula. It's an opulent state created from the desert with the riches of oil. It's also become one of the most important sites for the world's larger arms deals. Every two years, it hosts the IDEX Arms Bay, the largest of its kind in the world. And the new South Africa is exhibiting for the first time. South African Defence Minister Joe Medis here enjoying the fruits of the ANC's revolution. But he's not the only South African at the fair. Tucked away, his fellow countrymen and old arch enemy, Ivan Barlow here to promote his professional military advisory service. The mercenaries' promotional video speaks of only training. The Executive Outcomes mission is to provide the most professional military training related to land, sea, and air warfare. Since 1993, when they began, they've completed dozens of usually top-secret missions. Their reputation has grown, and today they stand as one of the busiest. Everything is going very well. Um, we've had very interesting people who've been to see us, and obviously we've been extremely busy over here. So it's too early to say that this was highly successful in terms of contract, but already we've been invited to visit a few countries around here, and I believe that any government that asks us to visit them can only be serious. Later, a secretly filmed meeting with the French general, also involved in the mercenary business, revealed that executive outcomes has grand ambitions, but the competition is fierce. There can be times we can open the door for you, maybe, into a country, you can open the door for us. There can be countries where your skills and our skills combined can do something. We're still saying dependent, but there's no reason why we have to work against each other. We don't go into countries that are traditionally under French control. We don't, we don't, we don't go 
They're protesting at the idea of foreigners coming to kill PNG citizens so that politicians and businessmen can make money. It's nationwide revulsion at the idea of using mercenaries to solve a very local issue. Surrounding the parliament, they won't allow MPs to leave until the government stands down. Meanwhile, inside the besieged building, politicians squabble over who's responsible. During the debate, the government admits there was a link between the mine and the mercenaries. It's something they had always denied. Mr. Speaker, government has made a policy decision that only future expenditure on Bougainville, when the problem is brought to a close, will be repaid from the economy of Bougainville and will be repaid by coming to mine. Order. Tim Spicer strenuously denies any interest in the Panguna mine, but in his own words to the PNG Defence Minister, he wrote, We may be able to assist with funding and could come to some arrangement regarding part payment with mineral concessions. It's the early hours of the morning. Protesters and soldiers still besiege the Parliament. We have been confined to Parliament, and I think it's a siege. The military and uh, people surrounding the Parliament House have been in politics for 30 years, and within those 30 years, this is my first experience that I've been confined, that I cannot move, I can go out. Only a handful of MPs ever knew anything of the contract before it was signed. But many now know how executive outcomes work. They are known for something. They just get out there and shoot the whatever they think that way they don't care. They just achieve their mission and whatever they affirm it. How, how many people they kill or the hurt and the ill feelings, that's our problem. And I don't want to see this happen in this country. We're standing on territory onto which our own people fired mortars a short while ago. We surprised the enemy a little, I think. There are a couple dead and a couple badly burned. In 1994, Executive Outcomes spent nine months fighting in Angola in a top-secret and devastating operation. Following UN-sponsored elections in 1992, Angola plunged back into war. Executive Outcomes signed their first Angolan contract soon afterwards. When the elections collapsed, thousands of UNITA supporters were rounded up and slaughtered. Executive Outcomes was to be employed by one of Africa's nastiest governments. Unlike Angola, Papua New Guinea is a poor country with few resources. And there's never been the political will to really wipe out the BRA rebels. 
It was rather a case of greedy politicians falling into the grip of determined British salesmen. The equipment list which came with the EO contract included helicopter gunships, rockets, and high-tech surveillance equipment. But PNG officers also spoke of an ultra-secret consignment of even worse munitions. Major Walter and Numa worked with the mercenaries and didn't like what he saw. There was potential for massacres. There were weaponries that are now at our disposal, which we never, we never had before. And a uh, weapon that could kill people within radius of two, three kilometers. South African intelligence has discovered that EO had purchased 70 air fuel bombs. They're state-of-the-art Russian weapons, which suffocate everything in a two-kilometer circle. Maybe they have heard rumors about uh, air fuel bombs and the application thereof, but um, I think, and that's my personal opinion, that air fuel bombs in that area would uh, not serve any purpose in any case. Sandline are now suing the PNG government for the $20 million they say is still owed to them. Bill Gates, the new prime minister, though, has vowed he won't pay. He may sign a, a legitimate contract with a legitimate uh, government. The question is whether that contract was approved by parliament and whether it was within the constitution. And if it has been in violation with the constitution, it should be dealt with. And so, so it should be the government. From the British High Commission, where Colonel Tim Spicer stayed during his confinement in Papua New Guinea, he reluctantly gave a press conference. But he refused to be drawn on just who is behind the British organization. Or why a mercenary was receiving red carpet treatment from the UK High Commission. I'm a British subject. Uh, I think the British government has shown me every uh, uh, facility that they're able to do. You know, Sandline is happens to have an office in London. Um, there is no association other than that. While Spicer stays behind to face an inquiry, his fighters are going back to where they come from, South Africa. But it's become clear this was a very British operation. In the posh King's Road area of London is the headquarters of Spice's firm Sandline. And 535 King's Road is home to a number of other related companies, mostly mining and oil firms. According to a UK intelligence dossier, it's really this man behind it all. Tony Buckingham of the ex-British Special Forces and allegedly the mastermind behind an empire built on mineral concessions freed by mercenaries. And at the Papua New Guinea inquiry, Spicer admitted that he does work for Buckingham, but he said executive outcomes is entirely separate from Sandline, only a subcontractor. But then the judge revealed $18 million was paid into a joint account controlled by Eben Barlow and Buckingham. The judge concluded the information provided by Sandline that they're entirely separate from EO cannot be correct. A home video made by Executive Outcomes shows the worst of the marriage between Western business and the soldiers who for so long propped up the apartheid system. 
We struck oil and that's no sin. EO's home video also backs up claims that the oil industry has played a key role in providing work for the mercenaries. We went in in 1993 to secure the oil field so that they could recover the equipment. Yeah. That's the oil company. All just Texaco, Fina, Gulf, Sarangol, everyone. They've been able to now continue with oil production and, and all the international oil companies have now started investing very heavily into that area. So peace was sort of the condition for investment afterwards? Absolutely. No investor is going to allow his money to be spent thinking or knowing he's going to lose it. The executive outcomes mercenaries aren't easy to find. Their contracts demand secrecy with big financial penalties for those who speak out. The mountains of the Eastern Transvaal are a favorite hideaway for fighters who find it difficult to readjust to normal life. In 1993, David was recruited for EO's first contract in Angola. Four years later, He's still a mercenary. His job in the South African army ended when the ANC came to power. He said executive outcomes saved him and many others from the bread queue. Being a mercenary, a glamorous job? Never, ever. It's a job you do because that is what, you're tra what you've been trained to do all your life, being a soldier. So if you're going to do it, you do it properly. He says the first contract was in the Angolan oil town of Soya. Their task? to capture the Soya oil base while a British team rescued equipment. When we recruit, recruited at Soya, the purpose behind it, apart from guarding their oil support base, was to recover a fairly technical computerized pumping station or floating pumping station. And that was the main thing. Apparently this thing is worth somewhere in the region of $80 million. <laughs> of outcomes had arrived. They easily captured the oil base. David says two Britons conducted the operation. One was Tony Buckingham, the other Simon Mann, also ex-SAS. The international oil community had sent in its own private army. The time I met up with I was introduced by, as Tony Buckingham and Simon Mann. I was aware of the fact that they were involved in you know, the sponsorship of recovering the oil drum and the whole Soya trip. But they, were, they weren't introducing me as this is, you know, Brigadier General, Major General, whatever rank they may have had, just as two businessmen from an oil company. Their Angolan HQ was Quando Base, where oil workers used to stay. Offshore, the mercenary team used oil company boats to prepare for their attack. Once the oil base was captured, EO troops discarded their uniforms, pretended to be ordinary security guards, and invited in the press. We were hired by a, a, a legitimate uh, oil company, and they decided that to get expert people in, like the British ASA or whoever, um, to protect their installations against, against any sabotage. Is that mercenaries? You call that mercenaries? The Soya mission was EO's first Angolan contract, and it was the beginning of a lucrative business strategy. Today, Buckingham and his portfolio of companies control some of Angola's most valuable assets.
Luanda, Angola's capital. It's a devastated city. It should be one of the richest in Africa, but a vastly corrupt government has seen to it that ordinary Angolans see none of it. Cuba once extended the hand of friendship to Angola. Today, it's international business which supports the corrupt officials who control everything here. Buckingham's second operation in Angola involved not oil, but rather diamonds. We heard about the Buckingham diamond in London. His financing was all the old story. And uh, if ever we needed any equipment, specialized equipment, it was told that they should or would go back to him and ask for finances or discuss it. We knew that it's either diamonds or oil that was paying for this whole exercise. And uh, we knew the government gave us the weapons, but the money we bought the weapons, it was told it came from, from London. With success today, we got 80 heads. We had no human loss on our side, except one or two got wounded here and there. I wish you could feel the pressure of the exploding bombs. This morning, a big mortar fell just 20 meters away. It's not nice. It's not nice. When Dolphin Tonda first disappeared, Mari was given photos of three dead men. She still agonizes whether one of them is her husband. I might be wrong. I don't know. But when I look at this guy's moustache, okay, his, his face is swollen. Um, he's got a straight moustache. We, as Dolph had a moustache that comes right down. We didn't even get a letter to say they were sorry. It was like they wanted us to believe that they were dead so that we could just carry on with our lives and we wouldn't be a burden to them. When Executive Outcomes did send Mari a letter, it was a lawyer's letter demanding about $1,000 for a death certificate for her husband. They even refused to pay out his one-year contract. I don't know how to write this letter, but after Unita attacked us, it was decided by the powers that be to teach them, Unita, a lesson that they would never forget, to absolutely annihilate everything within a radius of 30 k's, and the result was that nothing was left and bodies everywhere. It was devastating. The Rekis captured a few Unita soldiers, and what they did to them to extract information from them, if only you can imagine it, it was worse. It will give me nightmares for the rest of my life. The day of the key Angolan battle has come. The EO mercenaries blacked up for the final attack on the diamond town of Kukon.
attack, which opened up diamond concessions from which Tony Buckingham is alleged to have made a fortune. Dio's mercenaries went on a drunken looting spree lasting a day. En route to Wombo City in southern Angola, heading into Unita rebel territory. Today, Unita remains cut off from the world by self-imposed front lines, and the UN struggles to maintain a fragile peace. The body of the latest Brazilian peacekeeper to be killed has flown back to the Angolan capital. EO's supporters say private armies are less costly and more effective than the UN. But EO's peace does not always last. Balundu is the capital of Unita territory at a town where the people have seen the worst that war can bring. Today, Unita has been beaten into submission, and EO are widely regarded as being responsible. Many here have witnessed executive outcomes in the battlefield. They say the worst was the EO Air Force. They say that once the mercenaries were employed, the air war became more fierce and accurate than it had ever been. We could see them in the helicopter, and they would shoot and laugh. But if it was an aeroplane, we wouldn't see them. But we would hear the language they were speaking through the FM radio. The language was English. Look at this. She's burned like this all over her body. It's clear evidence of phosphorus bombing. And at Sao Pedro Market in Wombo City, MiGs drop phosphorus bombs onto this crowded marketplace. They were bombing this uh, places like the San Pedro Market where they were seen. Uh, a lot of people. When the bombs they were full, uh, it uh, comes as big, and then it divides itself in small bombs. And the way it looks like when they are now burning, they burn like a, a big fire, in a in a big fire, and it depends doing a noise like that. It was undoubtedly the success of the mercenaries' air wing, which did do most to turn the tide in this war. Executive outcomes brought in pilots, who, though not familiar with the MiG jets, were quick to adapt. The South Africans did bring with them huge experience having spent years here flying at war for the old apartheid government.
Geo has been given an uncontrolled freedom for destruction. There are no controls to the force they can deploy or how they deploy it. Unexploded phosphorus bombs are all too easy to find in Wombo. Jonas Savimbi's house was hit with pinpoint accuracy. It's believed that a key EO task was to kill Savimbi, the rebel leader. The BBC told the world that uh, as soon as he said it, he enemy died, he attacked the town, and uh, mostly innocent women and children. Then we also, I also had a few personal incidents where uh, they were shot at civilians out of the helicopter by individuals of the company. It was very difficult because the civilians in that area were pro-Unita, pro-enemy. Some more enemy battles with these, some more nothing, only civilian. Close. So it was very, very difficult. It's a very difficult war to distinguish between enemy and uh, civilians. In southern Angola, the producers asked if Unita might have captured Mari Pantonda's husband, Dolph. Amongst the demobilizing Unita troops, a soldier was found who did know something. And Unita also handed over photographs never seen before. They said he's a mercenary captured during battle, but don't know his name. When we captured them, I wanted to kill them. But because the government always denies that they use mercenaries, I decided that we have to display them to the world to prove that mercenaries are in Angola. And this is what it's all about the diamond fields of Angola. After EO had taken Kapunt town, Buckingham's companies were rewarded with some of the richest diamond concessions in the world. In a 1996 prospectus, Buckingham claimed as Angolan concessions hold diamonds worth three and a half billion dollars. <laughs> Further, huge security budgets are then spent on the same mercenaries to guard his mind. It's a key Buckingham strategy, and he's left behind security firms wherever his mercenaries have fought. Alpha 5 in central Luanda is just one that EO is associated with, now that the Angolan mercenary operations are over. Still in Angola, we understand that there are some special companies uh, who have recruited these people, but we think that it is a special plan, probably, uh, because there are some people still in Luanda holding mercenaries in Rwanda who are leading some, they say, they call security companies, trust private companies. They this is very good is to be there. still there. In the Pretoria Garden of the Executive Outcomes Logistics Center in South Africa, there's a memorial to the EO mercenaries who died in battle, mostly in Angola. But Angolan visa forms and South African passports were easy to see in EO's personnel office. It's further evidence that executive outcomes has never really left Angola. We're looking for specialized guys. Um, that's um, in my main criteria. Normally, I'd say it's someone that's. Um, in our terms, um, trained until 
Petroborough also tells of how Ibis Air arranged for her family's passports to be confiscated once they started asking questions. Petra's 16-year-old son, Elijah, now carries a gun. He's terrified EO mercenaries will come and get them because they're speaking out against EO. My mother's frightened. I'm frightened. We all, we, we're pretty frightened of these people. We carry firearms, different weapons. I inspect the wire every day. Maybe because we're going to expose their whole uh, operation and they might not be able to get work anymore as mercenaries. And this is Buckingham's newest company. It's called Diamond Works. But on closer inspection, it looks like just another Buckingham transformation. The company's only real assets are the mining concessions freed by EO in Angola and Sierra Leone. The prospectus goes on to reveal that Tony Buckingham is a director. And other key military figures have also been absorbed. From airports like this one at Lanseria, outside Johannesburg, Ibis aircraft full of mercenaries have streamed in and out. Experts suspect that with so many British military figures involved, executive outcome has the support of the British Secret Service. On the wild coast of South Africa, Colonel Jan Breitenbach of the South African Army is sure there are UK intelligence links. Breitenbach led the apartheid regime in battle against the Angolans. He says even during South Africa's darkest and most ostracized days, he always had links with the English SAS. And it was Colonel Jan Breitenbach who founded South Africa's elite reconnaissance unit, the RECI. He modeled the unit on the SAS, and is seen here with senior SAS officers. He's one of the few who would know of EO's intelligence links. After the war, um, Sterling, David Sterling, started an organization called Capricorn. Capricorn consisted of, of former SAS personnel, which was used by the British uh, Foreign Office uh, to extend, as it were, their, uh, their influence in third world countries. The organization that executive outcomes worked with from the series was known as Capricorn. So that, to me, was the connection between uh, the British, Capricorn, and 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 executive outcomes. Perhaps worried by this link, executive outcomes changed the name of its airline to Ibis Air. Though Tony Buckingham refused to give an interview for this film, his King's Road HQ was clearly panicking. There are some suggestions that executive outcomes are linked in more than uh, the knowledge of each other with Mr. Tony Buckingham and his visitors. And uh, something about uh, Mr. Buckingham's businesses being related to uh, British intelligence services somehow. What I'm happy to do is to document to you the facts. Mm -hmm. and, if, and then if those facts uh, come across, I'll be very happy. Mm -hmm. uh, Oh, they knocked me off. They really did. I don't know why they keep doing that. How the heck do I always lose connection? Anyways. 
I know it's kind of uh, maybe a little bit dry, but still. Uh, presents a different image, uh, then uh, it'll be very unfortunate. Okay, morning. It's morning now. This is the day after we took Kapun. We've been busy having a bit of a party since last night. These are all the men. The men who did the job are the men who are sitting here. And the people who aren't in our group, it's true to say, they missed a great deal. The Angolan operation was for many mercenaries an adventure but some complain of the inability to put their gun-happy times behind them. If medals were dished out, I think there were quite a few guys who should have got medals in Angola in the rest of the recents. I think it was actually a very empty feeling, you know, to get acquainted to normal life again, a normal, a normal sleeping pattern, my relationships with people who are dear to me. A man doesn't talk about this very lightly, but it was to be serious, it was very, very serious. I experienced it very intensively. And um, I feel sorry for the people around me. Mari Fantanda was deeply surprised to hear of the new photograph that had emerged during the trip to Angola. After four years, she'd given up hope. Does it mean Dolph might be alive? there's plenty of revulsion at the country's apartheid killers now going off and killing for other people. It's a reminder of a past South Africans are trying hard to forget. At the South African Parliament, a new law has now been put forward to put executive outcomes out of business. It proposes a 10-year jail sentence for anyone caught fighting for money. There's sometimes a perception that the South African government is sanctioning the activities of such uh, mercenaries. We have publicly condemned this. Uh, we are trying everything to ensure that we convince governments that we don't have any official connections and that we are taking steps to deal with this problem. It is a matter of tremendous embarrassment as well as concern to us. Anyone who understands the term mercenary and who understands our company will, whether it's inside our company or outside the company, deny that we are mercenaries. For a start, governments all over the world make use of private contractors to train their armies. Our client governments are no exception to that. I think people that still going to work for them should know better after what they've read and what they've known. Um, know now that if they go and work for them, they go with their eyes open.
interesting and executive outcomes are symbol. It looks like the black stallion that you see at the Denver New World Airport, International Airport. Anyways, um, next one I think we'll listen to. Uh, this is about uh, 33 minutes. Magical 33 again. Uh, anyways, dangerously rich billionaire super security. So with all these, whether quote-unquote private mercenaries or uh, state-run mercenary outfits out there, whether it's NATO, uh, the U.S., it could be ISO, the ISIS group, it could be, um, you know, all the things that are going on out here. You've got uh, the Academy, etc. And then, of course, there's G4S, etc. But this seems to be the future uh, it's simply the past. Nothing new under the sun here. Uh, the Roman Empire are using private mercenaries to fight their wars. And in the end, it's just folks like you and I, just average folks, they're caught in the crosshairs. Doesn't say much for humanity. Not for all these guys who are in these mercenaries' outfits killing people, and then these armies are called Christians. Or Muslims. But it's a big deal if you're a Christian because you're a liar. You're not a Christian. Only by word and name and not by deed. And I understand because we live in such a screwed up world that in order for a man to actually make a living, he has to be willing to kill, lie, cheat, and steal. Make a decent living. And if you're not, you're going to end up like me. Isolated, poor, and alone. That's the way it is. What do you do about those sort of things? We all have our regrets. But what profit to man to gain the whole world but lose his own soul, right? All right, here we go. Dangerously rich billionaire super class, super security, 2015. Pirates, even kidnappers, targeting today's super rich. Some say these threats are intensifying. And billionaires around the globe are fortifying their personal security with sophisticated, cutting-edge, and so-called head-of-state-level protection. From high security on the high seas... You're on your own when you're out here. Until the good guys can come and rescue you. To when the bad guys come. We can go ahead and deploy tactical. The tools and the technology. These are 15 shotgun shells. Take down any intruder at any cost. All their... Their jets or on the move, an entire industry is on call, ready to sell the super rich, super security, and even some good old-fashioned monsters. I'm absolutely emotionally prepared to kill somebody if I have to. With exclusive access to Warren Buffett's bodyguard, we go behind the scenes with his team. Money can't buy happiness, but can it buy personal safety? Inside the best protection, money can buy. This is Dangerously Rich, Billionaire Super Security. 
Beautiful cars, lavish mansions, expensive toys, life of the super rich. But these are nervous times for billionaires around the world. Even Facebook backer Sean Parker of Napster fame recently tweeted, I have a whole new set of problems to deal with now. Security, extortion attempts, kidnapping threats, death threats, etc. And he asked, was life better before? Experts say the global 1% is casting a wary eye on social instability. In fact, a recent survey by the Pew Research Center found that the wealthy are increasingly concerned about class conflict. So there is something to be worried about, I think. Yes. Brian Yuli is part of the Occupy movement in West Palm Beach. He says a small minority in his group should make billionaires uneasy. I would prefer that it never come to anything like that, but, you know, people are tired of feeling as if they're just being stepped on and don't matter. But at the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meeting in Omaha, Nebraska, the threat isn't necessarily an Occupy protester. Here, where literally tens of thousands of people are clamoring to get close to the legendary Warren Buffett, everything and everyone is a potential threat. The oracle may be the brains here, but this man is the brawn behind the Buffett operation. Dan Clark is Buffett's bodyguard. You're going to turn the client from the threat, and he got the job practically by accident after a chance run-in with Buffett's daughter, Susie, at this bagel shop in Omaha almost 20 years ago. Absolutely not. I didn't know where it would go. Part of the things that did help me, though, was my past training. Working as a police officer at the time, Clark offered his protective services on the spot and soon became Buffett's shadow, most prominently during Berkshire Hathaway gatherings where he's on the lookout for anyone suspicious. He's had people that have shown up before at an event with the client, and they are so fixated on the client that when the rest of the crowd is acting normally, they're presenting normal behavior, this person is not. Clark has since started his own private security firm, Clark International. Whether it's getting on and off a corporate jet or protecting somebody in a public place. Clark draws from a network of more than 100 security experts, agents with law enforcement and military backgrounds who train and prepare for multiple scenarios. Light out of cloud through an end. They're constantly practicing high-speed maneuvers here on this test track so they can get the protectees out of any situation they find themselves in. And they're paying total attention to detail, including where you put your hands on the wheel so that you can make sure you can control the car even when the airbag is popped out right in your face. But protective detail means keeping clients safe even in the most routine circumstances. Now, they rehearse arrivals and departures over and over again because one of the most vulnerable points for the super rich is when they arrive at a public event. Each man has a key area of responsibility protecting the front and the back and also making sure that the protectee knows where he's going. Clark has reportedly protected Sarah Palin and actor George Clooney, and he won't name any other clients. 
but they tend to be high-profile personalities who, like Warren Buffett, attract large crowds. At Clark International, the six-man diamond formation is used for the most dangerous situations, the most crowded rooms. Each man at a different point, each responsible for a different area. It's all about protecting the protectee. But sometimes the protectees need more than just manpower when it comes to security, whether they're at home or globe-trotting, the dangerously rich are fully loaded. Coming up, the big gun, the billionaire security. In the line of fire with the man who follows Warren Buffett's every move. Only the paranoid survive. And survival of the rich anywhere they go. Plus, taking down an intruder with this stuff. These are 15 shotgun shells. Or potentially something much deadlier. And being dangerously rich in risky territory. For the wealthy, one of the most dangerous times can be when they're on the move around the world, often in a private Gulfstream jet like this one. When we come back, more secrets of keeping the super rich safe. For most Americans, home security means an alarm system or maybe a dog. But for this house in Hollywood, it's a totally different picture. The nice thing about this teleport, it was designed to take excessive loads. Al Corby is the president of SAFE, which stands for Strategically Armored and Fortified Environment, a firm that designs custom, sometimes hidden, protection for the uber-rich. Corby uses this mansion in the Hollywood Hills as a show home for his security system. We've gotten in, put in the house right here outside the safe core. What we want to do is stop them here. Let me show you how you do it. Now we come into the safe core, okay? This door, ballistic, bomb-proof. You close the door, throw that one bolt. Now my wife and children are the safest people in L.A. And this just doesn't feel like a panic room or a bomb shelter at all. It feels like a little girl's room. That's exactly the point. You have full ballistics. You have surveillance, the camera. You have full connectivity. The kids can actually be on their iPod looking at the whole house. All right, now we come into the master bedroom suite. You notice everything still seems open. The kids' rooms and all. Oh, this is gorgeous. And even though you don't see any signs of security, it's a fortress. You've got ballistic walls, ceilings, and floors. You even have a bed that's sitting on a ballistic frame. So if there's an explosion underneath here, what happens? The, the blast will go out in three directions. Not that anything could get up through this floor, but if it did, this is an added level of security. All right, within the safe core is a safe room, and it's the command center where everything happens. You have all of the control and conveniences you can hope for. So you can see the entire house, every camera in the house, and you can control all the doors in the house? Is that right? Everything. And communications. So show me how that works. I said leave. Now let's say he doesn't do something. Then we can go ahead and deploy tactical right in that area. This is Todd Perry. He handles tactical and hardening for safe. And Todd, you've got a device here. This is terrifying. Well, these are 15 shotgun shells. And you mount this into the wall or into the ceiling or where? Either we put it behind walls, behind ceilings, so that it uh, blends with the architecture. 
And when somebody comes into the house, you can remotely press a button, and what happens? Well, first of all, it's it's not something that we do in the U.S. It's something we do overseas. Um, it requires a series of three or four authentications before it can be deployed. And then when you fire this off, could anybody survive underneath this? Not a chance. While most devices aren't lethal, many of Corby's systems can be controlled remotely. Billionaires aren't just paying top dollar for protection. They want top-notch convenience. Security isn't something that should make you feel honkered down and, and restricted. On the contrary, it should liberate you. Once you have it, you can go on with your life. Using this iPad or even just a remote control like you might have for your car, you can operate all of this home's tactical defensive systems, including this fog blast, which is designed to incapacitate or disorient any intruder who might be coming into the home. The goal is to keep the bad guys out, but ultra-wealthy homeowners also want to know that every precaution is taken in the event they're locked in themselves. Steel frame. And just steps away from that beautiful bedroom is a bathroom that looks normal, but is really anything but. Over here in the shower, they've got a biological wash in case of chemical attack. And on this side of the room, they've got a week's worth of supplies right here in the safe door. And if that's not enough, this house has a bomb shelter. Now at the lower level, we're 20 feet underground, and you notice we just came through another one of the blast doors. Another bomb door. Another bomb door. This whole area is an NBC shelter. And what does that mean? It's protection against nuclear, biological, and chemical, all known threats. So this is the bomb shelter. This is the bomb shelter. Okay, look. The new day bomb shelter. <laughs> so you have food and provisions upstairs, but this is where you keep the serious stuff. Exactly. How much stuff do you have in here? Upstairs was a day maybe a week. So if you had something like an earthquake, something that you have to get through a short time here, you have enough for at least three months to get through a flu, any kind of serious biological. So you've got food, you've got some gear here. Explain what that gear is. These are backpacks. If you had to leave the facility, you put the backpacks on, you go out. You have gas masks, backpacks, and you could put an NBC suit on and leave. But if you're going to be down here three months, you've only got about a uh, week's worth of champagne here. I'm a little bit worried about you. The cost for what Corby calls entry-level protection, up to $3 million. Or, as he puts it, it can be fabulously more expensive. The going rate for fabulous, $10 million. The price of one of Corby's latest projects. It would be full life support systems. It would keep these people and sustain them for generations, even if they were the last two people on Earth. So these people, they're not worried about a hurricane. They're worried about the end of the world. Well, there wouldn't be an end of the world. There would just be an end of our world. They'll still be here. Still to come, dangerously rich. They retrieved a shotgun and the target of a bizarre underground crime. Plus high flying into the most dangerous places for billionaires. We brought passengers in, drop them by 30,000 feet, designed to stave off any incoming missile attack could be safer than being grounded. And securing this $50 million mega yacht far from home and far from any help. High security on the high P. When we come back, more security secrets of the super rich.
a posh dining room, a Sunday. Annual maintenance alone on super yachts like this costs about 10% of the yacht's overall value. And then, to keep everyone on board safe, expect to pay somewhere about uh, 7 to 8% of the entire value of the boat, uh, adding um, really top-level security measures into it. This is a yacht we're standing on now that is going for $54 million. That's correct. It's talking about a lot of money. It is a lot of money, but uh, the stakes are high as well. According to U.S. Navy records, four yachts were hijacked by pirates just last year. There's been a tragic end to a very tense situation. In one of those attacks, which American officials called one of the most violent episodes since the modern-day piracy epidemic began, the owners and their guests were shot and killed. Up next, on guard. Hand-to-hand combat with the man the Oracle of Omaha is investing in to protect it. I'm absolutely emotionally prepared to kill somebody if I have to. Fired up and downrange. This is firearms training inside Dan Clark's army. That dangerously rich billionaire super security returns. Greenwich, Connecticut. 2003. A bizarre kidnapping over the weekend. Billionaire hedge fund manager Eddie Lampert, hailed by some as the next Warren Buffett, is kidnapped at gunpoint in this underground parking garage. They retrieved a shotgun. The abducted financier is released unharmed after being held for more than 30 hours. It was one of those seminal moments. Whether it's a serious crime or an embarrassing moment like media mogul Rupert Murdoch hit with a pie in the face. Bodyguard Dan Clark's job is to thwart every type of attack, no matter how harmless or hostile. Andy Grove said that only the paranoid survive, and that's my job, is to take all these things into consideration. Working as Warren Buffett's protective detail for almost two decades now, Clark, not coming in here like who spent almost 24 years with the Omaha Police Department, has made a name for himself in the private security world. Oh, my weapon out. <laughs> He's recruited about 100 men and women to work with his own firm, Clark International. Despite their police and military experience, Clark's agents still routinely train with him. In addition to Warren Buffett, Clark says he serves a roster of other high-profile clients he's not allowed to name. No matter who he's protecting, though, his team needs to be ready to stop and sometimes incapacitate in a thing. But some situations could trigger more lethal action, and they need to be just as prepared to respond. This is firearms training. They're using real bullets today, and most of these officers are using Glock handguns like this Glock 40. They're standing right up close to these targets today because they expect in a real-life situation, they'll be as close to the assailant as about seven feet. And key to maintaining control of the situation and work, work, attention to every vulnerability from every direction. Looking for more threats? Uh, one of the most important skills they learn is how to clear the protectee out of the way and still hit the target. Are you emotionally prepared to kill somebody if you have to? I'm absolutely emotionally prepared to kill somebody if I have to. If you hesitate, 
it can be very deadly for you and also if you're protecting somebody, obviously. Stay there and do the pretty Lark says he's never actually had to fire a weapon protecting a client. Out of the way, and then we're going to attack and get our weapon on target. He says he avoids using force and tries to minimize any potential risk with advanced planning and detail. And while he doesn't have to always like the people he protects, he's got a number of gang members and people that I've official capacity had to protect or provide security for. I didn't necessarily care for them. He says he's fortunate his clients generally have, as he says, a certain amount of gratitude that they've given back. You can't help but to develop a relationship uh, with the folks that you're working for. At the same time, you do have to remember what your job is and what you're there for. Despite Warren Buffett's very public demeanor, Clark is private about his relationship with the Berkshire Hathaway CEO. And the fact is, Clark can't protect Buffett from everything. But some of the super-rich are plotting ways to survive, no matter what. When we have an apocalypse and all this is destroyed, and the last two people left alive on the planet Earth are going to be two billionaires. Right. Adam and Eve. And if you guys start over, it's probably a good place to start with Adam and Eve. <laughs> The difference between the dangerously rich and the rest of us, they can afford to think in biblical proportions. Quickly. 
Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. And I, John, saw these things and heard them. And when I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then saith he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. And he saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still, and he that is holy, let him be holy still. And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life, and may enter in through the gates into the city. For without are dogs, and sorcerers, and whoremongers, and murderers, and idolaters, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. And the spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. A picture of an alleged teen killer. They say 17-year-old Jose Reyes convinced a friend to kidnap and brutally murder a teenage girl in order to help him sell his soul to the devil. The one injury that was impossible to miss was this, an upside-down crucifix that they say had been carved on the girl's stomach. What we knew was this, that Mr. Reyes and a juvenile um, were in the vacant apartment with the 15-year-old complainant, that they discussed the fact that Mr. Reyes had sold his soul to the devil, and if they ended up killing this teenager, um, this would allow the 16-year-old to also sell his soul to the devil. Shocking confession from a Pennsylvania newlywed. The so-called female Craigslist killer now claims to have murdered 22 people across the country. Barbara has confessed to murdering the Ferrara and claims to have killed nearly two dozen more across the country, starting at just 13 years old when she joined a satanic cult, saying, quote, when I hit 22, I stopped counting. There are We're not dependent on a NATO resolution or UN resolution to execute policies consistent with the national security of the United States. So, now, Secretary Pinelli, you in your talk, in your remarks, uh, you you talk about uh, uh, first we're working first. We're working to increase diplomatic isolation and encouraging other countries to join uh, the European Union 
and Arab League in, in uh, imposing sanctions. And then you note that China and Russia have repeatedly blocked the UN Security Council from taking action. Uh, are, are you saying, and is the president taking the position, he would not act um, if it was in our interest to do so if the UN Security Council did not agree? When it comes to uh, uh, the kind of military action where we want to build a coalition and work with our international partners, then obviously we would like to have some kind of legal basis on which to do it as we did in Libya. Now, some sort of legal basis. We worried about international legal basis, but nobody worried about the fundamental constitutional uh, legal basis that this Congress has over war. We were not asked, uh, stunningly, in, in direct violation of the War Powers Act, whether or not you believe it's constitution, it certainly didn't comply with it. We spent our time worrying about the UN, the Arab League, NATO, and too little time, in my opinion, worried about the elected representatives of the United States. Do you think that you can act without Congress uh, to and initiate a no-fly zone in Syria without congressional approval? You know, again, uh, our our goal would be to uh, to seek international permission, and uh, we would we would come to the Congress uh, and inform you uh, and determine uh, how best to approach this, uh, whether or not we would uh, want to get uh, permission from the Congress. Uh, I think those are issues we would have to discuss as we decide what to do here. Well, I'm almost breathless about that because what I heard you say is we're going to seek international approval and they will come and tell the Congress what we might do, and we might seek congressional approval. No. Well, I want to just say to you, that's a big deal. Wouldn't you agree uh, you served in the Congress? Yeah. Wouldn't you agree that that uh, would be pretty breathtaking to the average American? So would you like to clarify that? But I've, uh, I, I, you know, we, I've also uh, served uh, with Republican presidents and Democratic presidents who has all, always reserved the right to defend this country if necessary. But you, before we do this, you would seek permission of the international authorities. If we're, work, if we're working with an international coalition and we're working with NATO, uh, we would uh, want to be able to uh, get uh, appropriate permissions in order to be able to, to do that. That's, that's something that you know, all of these countries would want to have some kind of legal basis on which to act. Or what legal basis are you looking for? What, what entity? Well, I, obviously, the U, if, if NATO made the decision to go in, that would be one. Uh, if, uh, if, we, if we developed an international coalition beyond NATO, uh, then obviously some kind of UN security resolution. Would so, be on, a coalition of, so you're saying NATO would give you a legal basis and uh, um, an ad hoc coalition of nations would provide a legal basis? If we, if, we, if we were able to put together a coalition uh, and uh, were able to move together, then obviously we would seek whatever legal basis we would need in order to make that uh, uh, justified. I mean, you, you know, we can't just pull them all together uh, in a, a combat operation without getting the, uh, the legal basis on which to act. Well, who are you asking for the legal basis from? If it's a... Uh, Obviously, if the UN passed a security resolution as it did in Libya, we would do that. Uh, if uh, if NATO came together as we did in Bosnia, uh, we would rely on that. 
So, you know, we, we have options here uh, if we want to build uh, the kind of international approach to dealing with the situation. Well, I'm for all for having an in, international support, but I, I'm really baffled by the idea that, that somehow an international assembly provides a legal basis for the United States military to be deployed in combat. I don't believe it's close to being correct. They, have, they provide no legal authority. The only legal authority that's required to deploy the United States military is uh, the Congress and the President and the law and the Constitution. Let me just for the record be clear again, Senator, so there's no misunderstanding. When it comes to the national defense of this country, the President of the United States has the authority under the Constitution to act to defend this country, and we will. Uh, if, it, if it comes to an operation where we're trying to build a coalition of nations to work together to go in and operate as we did in Libya or Bosnia, for that matter, Afghanistan, we want to do it with permissions either by NATO or by the international community. There you go. If you didn't figure that out, listen to it again. We don't do anything geopolitically, nothing, without the permission of NATO, in NATO uh, of the UN and of NATO. Some superpower we are. Some empire we are. What a lie. Okay, folks. That's that. I'm going to end it. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.